Sorry, I'm eating an apple. Log Talk Radio. Hi, this is the Independent Corner with Jonathan Moody, and my two special guests are uh, Patrick Casey and Warren Miller. Hey, guys. What's going on? This is Warren. <laughs> hey, this is Pat. Good to be here. All right, awesome. Um, okay, I guess the first question to kick it off is, uh, how did you two meet? We met in detention in eighth, wait, seventh grade, eighth grade, what grade was I think that? it was eighth grade. Yeah, eighth grade? in eighth grade. So you guys were the bad kids in school? I was. Pat, uh, I was uh, like the nerdy nerd at the school. Um, <laughs> but I was in detention that day because I had gotten in a fight with our largest bully. And he really stomped the floor with me. It was pretty sad. So you also got detention after getting the crap kicked out of you? Being in a fight, you had to go to detention. Party. I felt I'd been punished enough with the beating I'd received. <laughs> the illogical politics of a junior high. <laughs> okay. Um. Uh, you know, how many features did, or how many like uh, videos have you guys done um, prior to working? Like, how many short films and whatnot did you do before? You really do. Our, our only short film we've ever really made was Meg the Head, which is on the. Uh, can you stop stabbing me, DVD? Other than that, it was pretty much always features. I don't know exactly well, sure school, why. I mean, in the in the early days, we made a lot of uh, well short skit. comedy skits for our because we did a uh, like a local cable television show in high school. Oh yeah, tell us about that. Was that a lot of fun? That was a lot of fun. That was a great opportunity, and it allowed us. I mean, we had an hour long like live variety show on every week, and then we would do pre taped skits. So it got more and more cinematic as the years went by, but uh, yeah, it allowed us to be uh, unfunny and be yeah. horrible on TV and learn how to make mistakes <laughs> at an early age, you know. Right. Uh, Worm, you were going to say something? No, oh, I just said it was like boot camp. Because <laughs> uh, we had to do the show every week, and we had, well, we didn't have to. There weren't specific guidelines, but we determined that we always needed at least one new sketch every week, if not more. So we just had to really crap them out over like a four-year period. And most of the time we would only like shoot and uh, edit the whole thing like the day of the show. Like we were on Friday nights at 12.30 and we would just meet after school and work during the Friday afternoon. So we got good at doing it fast too. Would any of those, you know, skits ever see the light of day on like YouTube or something? Um, Probably not. They're kind of... Uh, Varying degrees of embarrassing now. I'd say there's a possibility, actually, if we were to go through and just pick out the ones that might stand stand up. I say no. Well, you should. Well, um, since I'm, you know, I think where I talked to you a while ago about uh, Murder Made Easy, and uh, you were talking about maybe a distribution deal for that. Is that still in the works? Well, that's sort of because um, one of our friends who also works in the film industry and has seen the majority of our like feature length movies made a good point about releasing Murder Made Easy now basically the point being that if we'd released that when that was our first movie that would have been cool but now it's like it's not like it's a bad movie it's just noticeably worse than like Hey Stop Stabbing Me or anything we've done after that and he kind of pointed out that maybe we should wait until we're 
like more successful and could release it under the banner of like Warren Miller and Patrick Casey's first movie rather than just kind of crapping it out to the world now. Like it's our newest movie. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, you know, if, if was it would, would you consider it your worst movie that you guys pretty much feature that you have made? No, actually the movie we made after that was significantly worse. And that was the one that got the distribution deal, right? Yes, that was a I was a teenage Frankenstein's roommate. Yeah. And I heard I I remember reading somewhere that um that uh, because of, uh, you know, because of Murder Made Easy, since uh, that was released in, like, black and white, they, the distribution company wouldn't uh, sell it? Um, well, we never actually got officially picked up. Maybe what you're thinking of is um, uh, we sent it into this company. I don't even know if they still are making movies. called Unipix. They did, like, Jack Frost, the... Um, Killer Snowman, not Michael Keaton version, uh, and Uncle Sam. And we sent it into them because we were like, well, their movies stink. Maybe they'll release this. And, yeah, they had some sort of meeting about it and determined they couldn't release it because it was black and white and starred all 19-year-old nobodies. Uh, at least that was the nice letter they wrote back to me. Possibly they watched, like, the first four minutes and just thought it was terrible and uh but we never really pursued distribution as hard as we could have on that film because of the fact that it was, yeah, it was all locked up in some sort of epic uh, yeah. struggle. Yeah. So it's like by the time our cinematographer was just a whole thing where he like stole the raw foots and was basically holding us hostage. And the, uh, so we didn't end up getting our foots back for like two years. And by that point we'd already made other stuff. And yeah, we actually, the movie was never... The movie was never officially completed until uh, we made that movie in 1998, uh, and we didn't actually, it wasn't completed and like legitimately edited until I'd say 2001, 2002, because it took us so long to get the like raw foots back. Um, the thing we sent to Unipix was like a just kind of really shitty VHS timecode dub that we had uh, copies of from all the raw footage. Oh, but, okay. uh, it but it looked of, really unimpressive, and that surely didn't help our chances. No, I mean, it, it looked bad to begin with. Cause we and then we were also like, oh, we can't now. deliver it yet because of a legal imbroglio. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that made everyone really excited about it. <laughs> the possibility uh, that they get tangled up in an uh, epic lawsuit. Uh, like, how much would that guy be charging you guys? Because he, he had to have known you guys wouldn't have enough money to, or like, how much was he suing you over? Um, I think he was suing us for like $60,000. That was part of the thing, though. His whole, the whole lawsuit didn't actually make any sense because we were, we were all like 19, and we didn't offer him any money, which I think yeah, was we part told of the him from the front. We were like, we don't have any money. We'll, we'll <laughs> How are you going to sue us? We'll, we'll uh, you know, you get a percentage of the profits. We had a deal basically worked out, but no like actual written contracts, which was a terrible error. So how did you error. get the uh, raw footage back? Um, long story short, we decided to just settle the lawsuit um, for a piddly sum midway through. Once we realized that if we went to court and, like, won, quote, unquote, all we would really be winning is not having to pay him $60,000. It's not like we'd get the raw foots back because it actually had nothing to do with the lawsuit. He was just saying we owed him money. We would have had to sue him separately for the tapes. I don't even know if you can 
sue for yeah, this guy is involved in a lot of lawsuits we since found out and he's really like you know um like they kind of abuse the legal system and like to sue people and force them to settle but we ended up settling and then How did you we meet that guy? see them again so it was worth it um it's an absurdly long story that is possibly not that interesting the okay. short version is that of a lady who served as executive producer on Murder Made Easy, who we had worked for doing video projects in high school. Um, like we made, yeah, video projects for her school. was going to go into business with him. And so I have no idea how they met. That was how she introduced us. It was like, hey, here's this guy, and he owns all his own, like, video equipment. And he has a whole your movie. stuff. There We're like, wow, we really did office. But then she ended up turning out to be a disaster as well, and she sued us after that other lawsuit was over. But that time, it was a small claims court, so we went in and defended ourselves and just won. That was a gratifying day. (laughs) Wow. See, gosh, you guys are getting sued left and right for your movies. Or at least just one. That was why the next movie um, was so stinky, was because... Um, well, actually, it was before any of the lawsuits that have, stuff had happened. It was right after he'd stolen all the raw footage and was demanding money from us. And we were basically like, well, um, fuck you. Uh, um, that was far from our only movie idea. We'll just make another movie. And so we just sort of made Frank Stein's roommate as fast as we could to fill the hole in our soul that had formed because of our murder murder easy ordeal. Maybe this is a late date to check on this, but are we, are we swearing in this interview? Yes, you are allowed to swear because it's mature. It's like that. under the mature label, so. Fuck yeah. Yeah, so you can say any cuss word you want on here. Any of the seven deadly cuss words or whatever. Cocksucker! Yeah. There you go. Um. So, okay, so, you know, you guys, how how fast did you guys write I Was a Teenage uh, Frankenstein's Roommate? Let's see. I'm sure we're the exact details. I just started writing it. Uh, we were coming home to Minnesota from, I was going to school in L.A. at the time. Pat was in Boston. Boston. Um, and I just started writing the movie, having no idea what it was about, where it was going. And then Pat got back, like, like the day or two days after I started writing it. And then we just kind of, like, finished it. Like, it was going so absurdly fast. I mean, that's part of why the movie's not that great. Is yeah, then we really ended up shooting the whole thing over the span of ten days. It was from the moment that the idea was first hatched to the day we shot our last scene, I think, was a total of 13 days for pre-production and production. Hmm. So we really crapped that one out. So it's not really so much a movie. It's more like a curiosity item. I don't know. <laughs> it did. It, it it sort of it had good characters. That's the one selling point of the movie, I guess. Funny characters, um, real lackluster everything else. Oh, neat. I mean, I guess that's that's one thing that you guys have are definitely characters that are insanely crazy. Were you inspired we, by anything? Like, I know I read somewhere that you guys were inspired. Like, you guys love the Money Python or the airplane stuff. Um, where'd you read that? I think it was in an interview. Huh. 
I mean, uh, we do like Monty Python and Airplane. Well, maybe it didn't inspire it, but that's what you yeah. guys kind of grew up on, the comedies like those. Definitely the, like, Air, the, like Zucker Abrams, like Airplane, Naked Gun stuff. I mean, as much as we both uh, respect and enjoy Monty Python, I don't think that was particularly influential on either of us. We were more, I mean, our generation, we were really, our comedies, you know, grows out of the Simpsons, basically. Uh, but we're also huge Coen Brothers fans and Terry Gilliam. Uh, and then sort of in college, we really got into old school, like, screwball comedies and, like, 1930s, 40s style farces, which is kind of where yeah, Dorm Days really came from. And, yeah. yeah, Dorm Days was definitely, I mean, had to have been kind of also kind of like Shakespearean farce kind of, you know, since it's a comedy I mean, of errors. Farce in general. Well, we were kind of surprised actually after we finished the script and just the journey that took to finally being a real movie. Um, a, how little most Americans think they like farce, and B, how little most Americans even know what farce is. Because <laughs> uh, we kind of thought that not like everyone would see the or read the script or see the movie and be like, this is the greatest thing ever. But we were a little shocked by um, how little most people seem to understand the subgenre of comedy that we had so fallen like, in love with. That American Pie wannabe, an American Pie ripoff. I'm like, well, not really. I mean, the reason we made it the way it is, I guess, was American Pie into update it. We're like, let's make a farce, but we'll put it in college so people will think it's like American Pie and maybe somebody will make it. Yeah, that actually, that really, that logic bit us in the ass as far as negative, negative press for uh, dorm days was concerned. Yeah, the, the having it be about young people, because um, I mean, I, I didn't really understand the comparison with American Pie. I mean, I, actually, American Pie is a really good movie. We both like it, but it's just um, not the same, you know. Yeah, it doesn't have the same sort of like structural. Uh, story or comedy, really. Uh, yeah. Um, so, okay, the uh, the dorm days. Now, I mean, were you guys kind of mad that, like, seeing the direction they were taking the directors, or were you just like, you know, it's their script now? Um, I mean, there's definitely some of that, because before they even started shooting the script, we had a meeting with them where uh, – they informed us that they they changed some things in the script and they wanted to see what we thought. So we came in and we all like read through the script beginning to end. Yeah, so they were talking about are the, the Hill and Brand brothers who are the producers and the directors yes. of the films. Yeah. And uh, the one the one big change like there were little changes here and there, uh, but the one big change was they added a twist ending to the movie that we thought was. Uh, like, kind of unnecessary. As years have gone by, I've cared less and less about that. I'm sure Pat has as well. Yeah, it's like at the time I was mad, but now, like, once you, I don't know, once some time has passed, you kind of forget about all the things in a movie that maybe weren't the way you wanted them to be. Also, I mean, once the movie was done and we saw it, frankly, if that had been the only thing that we didn't like about the movie, you know, that would have been awesome. It was really the movie. The movie overall did not turn out the way we um, 
I wouldn't even say the way we wanted, just the way we thought it was going to, from being on set, watching them shoot the movie. We kind of had a perception of what the movie was going to be like, and obviously we knew what our script was supposed to be like, and we're kind of shocked when we finally saw the uh, final product of what the movie, in fact, really was. So it was kind of a weird disconnect between this thing that we, you know, created and wrote, and then now there was this whole other movie that in some ways almost felt like we didn't have anything to do with. Does that make any sense? Yeah, is that also how you feel about Dorm Days 2, possibly? No, Dorm Days 2 is a little different, because Dorm Days 2 is following this, you know, the stuff that I was just talking about. Um, so we kind of went into writing that. Oh, okay. So you worked uh, around it. That. So we're just kind of like, all right, well, none of the stuff that we really loved about the like our script for the first one apparently translated to screen. Like, people didn't – most people didn't seem to, like, pick up on um, what we were going for. Or if they did, they just weren't into it as a lot of – a lot of the bad reviews that we read online would specifically say something along the lines of, it's basically like a 90-minute episode of Three's Company, um, <laughs> which is a fairly accurate description, truth be told. Yeah, yeah. but, yeah, but it, being defensive, we'd be like, well, it's not like, it's not like Three's Company invented farce. Three's Company was a farce. But I guess maybe people always refer to it because it's the most like famous pop culture example of farce. Play, um, all the farce that a lot of people even know, you know, because it's not like farce is hugely popular in America. It just has been hugely popular when it's been used on a sitcom on a couple of occasions, like Three's Company or Frasier, you know, Frasier. which is where most people have experienced farce, you know. Right, right. Um, so, also, you know, it's very popular in, like, Europe, so. Oh, exactly. yeah, I mean, um, part of me was always secretly hoping that Dorm Days would be, like, a gigantic hit, uh, in France in or something? We heard that it did really well in Russia, for whatever reason. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, do you have fans in Russia? Apparently so. I don't know if we have fans. Um, maybe everyone who saw the movie hated it, but a lot of them saw it. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, a lot of people I know haven't had a chance to watch it yet, so I'm surprised. It's, you know, it's, it's there at, uh, like, all the movie stores, so. Well, there was a definite jump, a noticeable jump for us personally, as far as just, like, meeting new people at parties or bars or whatever. Um, in between when the movie first came out on video and when they started to show it on Showtime, because it basically went from I never met a single person who'd even, like, heard of it to people were like, oh, yeah, I think I watched, like, the last half hour of that at, like, 2 a.m. on Showtime. Well, at least it wasn't Skinamax. Yes. Well, there may be some pride in that. <laughs> um, like the, I mean, even though the movie perhaps is not, you know, the masterpiece it could have been, <laughs> but like that anyone's seen it or heard of it, because for years after we first sold the screenplay, I'd be like, oh, I'm a writer. What do you write? Um, I got like this uh, comedy coming up with no title. And then uh, just a mere few years later, it's something that's actually on TV and people have heard of it. Actually, so now when I tell people I wrote it, they look at me weird and don't like me anymore. <laughs> the best period um, as far as, like, impressing people at parties was actually the period of time in between, basically a year, in between when it suddenly became a National Lampoon movie and before it actually came out. 
So that was kind of fun to be like, oh yeah, we wrote the new upcoming National Lampoon movie, and people would react as though they didn't realize that all National Lampoon movies have been horrible since Christmas. Well, vacation. I mean, they just pump out movies now that just, you know. Like, Their mean, numbers have really gone up in the last couple of years, for sure, of like the number of National Lampoon movies that seem to come out. Yeah, and they all go direct to video, and which is, I mean, which is cool. I mean, I think that's a, that's the way anybody wants to watch a, you know, they don't want to really go to the theater to watch a National Lampoon movie, you know. Well, I mean, that was actually one of the things that was a problem for us with just the process of making Dorm Days One was when we wrote it, it was supposed to be student film, basically. We were just going to shoot it while we were in college. But that ended up not working out, and then we just ended up selling it um, out of college. But like once we finally saw the movie, the producers and directors still really thought that it should be a theatrical movie. We felt very strongly that it should just go straight to video, because it was the kind of movie that you, you rent it, you have lower expectations. The movie would possibly be a pleasant surprise. You pay like eight dollars to go see it at the mall or something, expecting you know a American Pie style movie. We figured most people would uh, not find the movie up to snuff, which was in fact the case because they they tried to give it like a my big fat Greek wedding style theatrical release where they would open it in a few key towns and it would be such a runaway hit that it would just kind of spread like a cancer over America. <laughs> um, but basically, no one saw it the first weekend, and that was that. Uh, and then they decided but it to did perform very well video. on video, ultimately. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a Dorm Days 3, so that kind of speaks for itself, I suppose. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, wasn't that fun going to Romania to shoot it? That was preposterously fun. That was, our, that was the main reason we wanted to do the movie after a certain point, uh, there's definitely moments where we kind of wanted to just like wipe our hands of the project if things weren't going the way that we wanted them to go. But there was always there in the background. In, well, the we can't quit. Are, we have to go to Romania. Yeah, we have to go to Romania. vacation to Romania, dude. <laughs> got to suck it up and keep going forward. Awesome. And it was worth it. Um, okay, let's go back to Hey Stop Stabbing Me, which was, I guess, your big uh, straight-to-video movie that you guys did together, but, you know, that you did with your friends. Yeah. Um, my friend Brian Lynch, he's a uh, screenwriter on Hollywood. He had a couple questions for you guys for Hey Stop Stabbing Me. So, okay. Um, how did you guys get such a great cast in Hey Stop Stab Me? Well, that's, like, what, um, I guess actually that question kind of goes two different ways. It's either the people, the people who liked the cast in Hey, Stop, Savvy and the people who hated it. Um, and the the question, I'm both, guessing that Brian liked the, the cast. Yeah, and the, question, the answer to both those questions are they were just our friends. Nobody auditioned. Um, aside from, like, one or two people, most of them weren't even, like, like, it's not even like we wrote the character and then tried to figure out who would play it. It was like the moment we made up the character, we decided which of our friends was going to play it and then wrote it specifically for them. But which, many of these friends were also, I mean, uh, we'd used in videos before and had been yeah, cast were, members on our, like, high school TV show, which is really the answer to the question of where did we get our great cast for our movie. It was that 
our friends. They're still just our friends. None of them, yeah. we didn't become friends with any of them because we cast them in something, you know? It was right. always the other way around. They were Maybe we became friends. friends with them because we determined they could act. Do you ever think about that? <laughs> no. No. Well, no, um, I do not. He says everyone's so good, which is shocking since there was so low budget. I mean, it's typecasting. That's what I was trying to go with. Oh, typecasting. Um, that was the last movie we made in college. Um, if you see, you know, like Murder Made Easy or some of the other movies, it's all these same people, and maybe they don't quite seem as good. It was just over, you know, like, like Pat was saying, they were on our TV show. Um, we did, like, high school theater with them. So basically by the time we got to Hey Stop Stabbing Me, I think all the actors featured in that, we'd really figured out what they could and couldn't do. Because none of them, um, except for one of them, none of them have pursued acting even, like, remotely. Uh, they all still live, you know, in Minnesota or, you know, scattered around the country doing some kind of legitimate investment banking style job or went to law school or something like that. But uh, Yeah, um, actually, uh, Presswood is, uh, I guess, by, uh, by me, closer to me than is of you guys, or he was. If he, I don't yeah, know he's, if he's working, uh, oddly enough, he's working for a Los Angeles, um, what is he, like, representative? Congressman, Pat? yeah, he's a congressman, congressman. from... Oh, cool. So Brad he's moved out there now? The reason he moved out here is just that Brad Sherman's from here, but, you know, is living in Washington. He's, oh, okay. And Brad Sherman works for him so Presswood, Presswood lives in Washington, and he's uh, an aide, and he's writing legislation and that sort of thing. Yeah, he was uh, he was actually going to at one point act in one of my movies because he was you know close by like three hours. Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. So he was going to, but then some lawyer stuff came up, and it, which is okay because the movie never got completed. It was a short <laughs> like uh, little crappy uh, horror comedy, you know. Well, never... you would have you would have been fairly pleased with him. I'm sh- I'm no, sure. No, I'm, I'm always... sure. You know, after watching him and Hey Stop Stabbing Me, I was like, you know what. And I contacted him, I guess, through MySpace or whatever, and, you know, asked him if he wanted to do that. Sent him the script. He liked it and wanted to do it. It just, stuff came up. Well, he was but, also one of our more uh, professional um, actors as far as just, like, his dedication and attitude. Well, yeah, level of professionalism. Yeah. Not that we paid him, because we certainly <laughs> did. He was, yeah, he was, uh, he was really good in uh, Hey, Stop, Stab Me. Um, had probably one of the lines that I guess he improved, you know, um, which was, uh, you know, uh, the the tit line that makes everybody I know laugh. Wait, no, that was in the script. Was that in the script? Uh, Herman a tit. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I can't think recall specifically. No, he, that was in the script. If it was in the script. Yeah, so, yeah, so I thought it was, uh, yeah, I thought he did a really good job just delivering his lines and, you know, um, but everybody, you know, and he uh, he was he was fantastic. Everybody, I would say. But um, how strict were you with the script? I mean, did you oh, did they make up a lot of? I was actually I was just just going to say based on your uh, assuming that it was an ad lib. There's one weird thing from going from our amazing schlock movies in like high school and college to say the dorm days movies is because. None of the people we were working with wanted to be actors, or some of them, like, only acted in our movies. Like, they never even did theater or anything else. Um, For the most part, except for a couple specific people, people would just show up and say their lines and go home, you know. 
Um, whereas on the Dorm Days movies, all of a sudden we're working with like actual actors, and we've learned that actual actors always want to improv and like change all their lines. So that's been very weird for us. Well, is it weird as being actors and being in actors in the Dorm Days movies or whatever, but when you're in a scene, do they do they sometimes stray away from the script and you're like kind of getting mad at them? Um, that's I personally happened. I, I got annoyed. Oh, you did? Okay. I was going to say, well, I personally not usually, haven't had like, that problem. Jimmy DiBello would often just not, not say his line at all, even remotely, and I'd just be like, come on, man, maybe you should try it the way it's in the script once or twice. That'd be fun. But actually, it's like when we're shooting, you know, I often want to not deliver my line exactly the way it's actually written, because once I get on set, you know, I want to make little changes. Like when we're shooting and we're in charge on Hey, Stop, Stab Me, it's like we wouldn't necessarily stick exactly to the script. We both no, I mean, if you, if you read the original script, for Hey Stop, Stab Me, it would be very different. But mm -hmm. all the ad-libbing usually came from us. Like, yeah, we'd be like, you know what, we say would this. decide, yeah, don't say that, say this instead. But the actors themselves usually, um, also, for a lot of our movies, we didn't print up, like, scripts for each individual person. We would just have one script on set. So a lot of the actors never even got to read their scenes until they showed up to shoot. Which very neat actors, by the way. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we didn't know at the time, nor did we care. Um, but, uh, yeah, we definitely learned at, one, after, at a certain point that the actors' performances were always better if they could look at the lines at home and, like, practice. Uh, but there was certainly we went through many, many movies where there was just the set script, and main characters would only get to look at the script when they were on set. Oh. Lessons learned the hard way, I guess. Well, that that came also from what we were doing in television, where you know, when we were doing skits, we wouldn't have scripts of any kind. We would just, you know, tell the actors what to say, <laughs> and then they would just repeat after us, you know. Yeah, um, I think on our on in the four years we were doing our TV show, we filled up, I think, fourteen tapes, two-hour tapes full of you know like five-minute sketches. So we made a million skits, like seventy percent of which are terrible, um, some of which were really good. But I think we only scripted out two scripts ever <laughs> in high school. It was all just like made up on the set because we didn't have enough time. Or yeah, we started scripting the kids in our last like few weeks doing the show before we retired and left for college. Oh, so, um, all right, well, uh, you know, in the Hey Stop Stab Me, um, I, I found it basically because of um, IMDb having, uh, when Dorm Days was just coming out, I guess, um, I had seen that, uh, I was looking for Danielle Fischel, what she was up to, and saw that she was in a movie called Dorm Days, so I looked up you guys, because you guys were new, fresh writers, I didn't know who you guys were, and, uh, you know, found out you guys had done Hey Stop Stab Me, and looked it up and started spreading the word around. You know, trying well, to get people thank to... thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, I would go, like, on web boards or whatever. Like, you got to check out this movie, and a lot of people, I think, have. So, hopefully. But, um, I think yeah, it, I mean, I think definitely... it performed fairly well, considering, you know, what it is, which is, you know, an incredibly cheap home movie, basically. But I mean, uh, people are some people horrified by how low-budget it is. Uh, and also how good it is, you know. Well, the people who like it, there are... Yeah, those are two different sets of people. <laughs> <laughs> For real? Are there people well, that tell you guys, like, straight up that they don't like He Stop Stab Me, or...? That's the funny thing, is, um, 
Well, for a while we lived kind of a skewed existence as far as like perception of how our movies were viewed by the general public because everyone we knew who had seen the movie, which obviously at first were pretty much only our friends or friends of friends, were just like madly in love with uh, Hey Stop Stabbing Me. And then when the movie was coming out, it ended up on you know, the IMDb and there was a moment where we were like looking at its uh, rating and we discovered that someone had given it a one. And that really stuck in our craw for years because we just didn't understand. You know, I'm sure maybe you didn't like the movie, give it like a four or something, but we were amazed that someone had like venomous hate for the film enough to give it a one. And since then, I think we've gotten a few more ones. Obviously, if you actually look at our IMDb like rating bar graph, um, a really huge percentage of mark above five and six, like super positive. But still, there's like this little cluster of like one and two that's really bringing down our uh, rating average. Can't lie, it's a little enraging. when they don't get what they're expecting, I think. Well, also, a lot of people on the IMDb don't actually watch the movies. They just look at the low-budgetness and then decide to be venomous and nasty. I would be surprised, actually, because we got our one, like, before the movie. I feel like it was almost before the movie had come out, or, like, right when it came out. I can't remember now. It was so long ago. It was some kind of heavily weighted one, too, because he was, like, some one of the top 500 voters. Yeah, or something. it was, it brought a, our it was thing a top down to, like, 2.1 voter. for a while. That was bogus. Yeah, it was, yeah all, a lot of those were uh, probably bogus, because, um, uh, you know, I talked to this company, or a lot of the people from this company called The Asylum. I, on, uh, I've LA. Them, yeah. And um, I was talking to Lee Scott, who's one of the directors on my show, and he he was talking about the uh, the uh, what is it the IMDb and how how stupid their rating systems and how stupid the reviews you know are because a lot of the people don't actually watch the movies you know and yeah they just uh, they just do it because they don't like low budget horror or whatever and you're, it's not even a horror really it's comedy. You know, I mean, there was there was the, there was only a couple scenes in Haste Up Sammy that were horror, and it wasn't like trying to be scary; it was trying to be funny and have that in there, kind of like evil. Yeah, dead. I mean, it's sort of like a horror-themed comedy, really, just because we're doing we're using like suspense-type scenarios, but you know, we're not really trying to scare anybody so, even remotely. It's just to make laugh. That's the other, like, I mean, obviously, it's funny in the sense that the movie's not even remotely horrific. Um, but I'd say even overall, as far as, like, the themes in the movie, really the movie is kind of playing off of, like, thriller cliches. Um, obviously, we have a few choice moments, like a dude getting run over with a lawnmower and stuff like that to kind of make it seem more, like, horror movie-like. But as far as if you, like, really watch it and do, like, plot points and, like, what's happening in the movie, it's more of, like, a, you know, Hitchcockian kind of, like thriller of just this guy. Yeah, it's really more a play on rear window more than anything else. Yeah, like it's a uh, Hitchcockian like wrong man is. Yeah. All this stuff's happening, which I mean I've used that in a lot of my uh, my movies. Like some the main character always has some kind of weird like something happening that to him you know the whole time, and you kind of feel bad for the guy because you know he's likable or whatever, and then he triumphs in the end. Yeah. So. Well, that was uh, definitely something I remember while editing 
Hayes stops at me that I became a little worried about when it occurred to me that our wrong man who all this, like, horrible stuff's happening to, who, you know, you want to, like, win in the end, it dawned on me that he was, like, possibly really unlikable because he was so stupid. Because, obviously, our movie isn't a real Hitchcockian thriller. It's not like North by Northwest. It's a ridiculous comedy. And I'd say 80% of the comedy in the movie comes from the fact that Herman is so dumb that he just, like, doesn't notice how, like, you know, how obvious all the bad stuff is around him. He will only become, like, slightly intrigued by, like, one, you know, minute element of uh, the mystery. And if he wasn't so dumb, you know, I mean, even he Up Sammy was kind of a farce, standard farce thing. If your heroes weren't so stupid the movie wouldn't be able to happen because they'd, you know, immediately figure out what was going on. But I think it turned out pretty good in the end that the audience did not hate Herman for his uh, stupidity. My natural likability and uh, handsomeness carried us through the day, I think. Nice. Um, I mean, like, in in acting in the movies or whatever, like the low-budget stuff you've done with your friends, is is that tough to direct yourselves or, you know, or whatever... No, not really. I mean, because again, by the by the time we got got to hate stop stabbing me, uh, we've been doing our TV show, and I've been making movies in college before I even started working with Pat. Pat um, was acting in the movies, so really, by the time we got to hate stop stabbing me, it was like you were kind of we were far past the point where we even like thought about that kind of stuff, you know. It was just that was the next movie we were making. And for whatever reason, it just turned out a million times better than everything we'd done before. So we, we do try and, uh, for the most part, um, there are, like, in these the amazing slot pictures where we're making them all ourselves. We try not to have too many scenes where both Worm and I are in the scene together. Because then we got to turn the camera over to some random other person who has occasionally disappointed us horribly. Like in our upcoming Sledgehammers at Dawn, there's one scene where Worm and I are battling to the death, and there's just a couple of shots that are just wildly out of focus. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, speaking of which, uh, do you guys, are you guys still looking for distribution? Um, well, that's kind of a, a complicated, I wouldn't even call it story. Um, we are looking for distribution, and we're hoping that... Um, I don't know, it might be too late already for the movie to come out in 2007. It'll definitely get distribution in 2007. We're basically, we have two different options um, of how we're going to release it. And uh, right you guys now aren't going through uh, Sub Rosa? Um, we're probably not going to go through them. Um, obviously, people saw Hey Stop Stabbing Me and were really happy about that. But we had, we had certain issues with, like, the packaging for the movie and, like, stuff like that. Um, and also we think that maybe somebody else could get us perhaps, like, a wider release and do more video stores, you know? Right. Which is uh, really our ultimate goal. And, yeah, right now, uh, you know, even on Netflix, I went to check it out and uh, said that, you know, there's a save. It's, you know, or whatever. It's not even available on Netflix right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, no, no, hey, stop saying me. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff that means not on Netflix. Uh, yeah, I mean, just like the, the like basically, he stopped stabbing me had like a real fast, immediate kind of little mini explosion onto the uh, like underground um, video scene. 
which at the time caused us to think that it would just like growing snowball effect and maybe become some sort of like yeah you maybe it'd be like a little tiny little blurb about it in uh entertainment weekly or something once enough people had seen it but then kind of very very quickly it just sort of petered out because of what Sabrosa was trying to do with it. And again, we really appreciated the fact that it got out there um, and some people saw it, but in the end we realized that maybe, uh, yeah, like Pat was saying, that we could find someone who could get it into like, I don't know, even just like a Best Buy or like Hollywood Video or something like that. Yeah, and um, do you guys think that Sledgehammer's at Dawn is your, your best up-to-date one? Um, it's hard to say. Technically, it's a better movie. Um, or not technically, like just you know, like um, direction and editing and like that kind of stuff. It's a better movie than Haystack. A little bit more like a real movie than Haystack's Avenue. Like less, a little bit less of a cartoon. But it still completely is. I mean, that's so so wildly off the wall. Saying that, Um, but it's hard to say because like with Haystack's Avenue. And this is my feeling on, like, any, you know, like, really good movie. Is it's usually kind of an accident, you know, that it turns out as good as it did. And obviously now we're making it sound like he stops having me some sort of amazing masterworks. But considering how we made it and, like, looking at our other movies, in that context, it kind of is. It was just, like, leaps and bounds better than anything else we've done. Um and in some certain ways, not always, but some ways, it's still better than things we've done afterwards, just because that was the project where, like, everything really clicked together. Um, and we, that was also one of the last things, other than Sledgehammers at Dawn, we'd done where we had complete control. So we sort of entered a whole new weird phase of our career um, where things can be improved or ruined by other people. Oh. <laughs> Um, so the, uh, the movie, uh, how do you guys write together? You know, it, it almost changes from project to project. Uh, the way we wrote, he stopped stabbing me because we wrote it so fast. And, um, this was also explained on the behind the scenes featurette on the DVD is that we had been making a completely different movie. Again, this was during college. So we only had the three months of summer vacation to, come up, you know, do a project, and um, we had a script that was done during the school year that we started immediately working on when summer vacation started, and we toiled over that for, like, well over a month and got hardly any of it done just because of yeah, we very shooting ass problems, um, and so we ended up just scrapping that movie because we realized it was, like, a waste of time and we were never going to finish it. We really wanted to do something because we made a movie every single year during one of our breaks. So we figured we had to make another one. Um, and so we went for like a drive one night, just like throwing around ideas. And somehow the overall idea for Hey, Stop Stabbing Me just gelled into place. And then we basically wrote it over the course of two and a half, three weeks, just like really pounding it out. And that was a lot of. Like, we'd talk about it, and then whichever one of us had the most ideas for the scene would sit down and write it while the other one just kind of paced around the room. And we just kind of did that end to end to end until the script was done. Um, but it has, it has been a little different on 
pretty much every project how exactly we work together. Oh, okay. That's, that's neat. Um, Worm, I have a question for your name. How did you get the nickname Worm? Um, well, I don't know how true this story is, um, but apparently when I was four, my, uh, I have two older brothers, Kevin and Eric, and the younger of the two older brothers, Eric, um, decided that he was going to give me a mean nickname, and he gave me the choice of worm or dirty slug, and little kid me chose worm. Um, and then that's calling you dirty slug Miller right now. Yeah, this is kind of the same ring. Uh, no one would, uh, I don't think it, some, some people think that is actually my real name. You can always tell the people who have really weird names themselves are usually the ones who feel that that could in fact be my regular name. Most people immediately realize that it's got to be some kind of nickname since I'm not German. Uh, like that, but, uh, that we met at Slam Dance. Yeah, we were at Slam Dance a few years ago. I was wearing a name tag, and some drunk German guy came up to me, and his name tag said "Worm," and he was like gushing all over me about how uh, I thought I was, was the only one. <laughs> and he met another guy named Worm. Now, I obviously did not have the heart to tell him that that was merely a nickname. <laughs> but there is like there are guys running around the world with the real name Worm. Yeah, I mean, probably most of them pronounce it verm, and I'm sure there's variations of uh, spelling, but apparently there are some people. I'm yes. assuming that in German, um, worm does not mean the same thing. <laughs> Who knows what it means in German? That's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Um, all right, so when you guys just started, uh, how, how did uh, Dorm Days actually come to be? How did you guys meet uh, the Hillenbrand brothers? Um, Pat should probably tell that story. Yeah, well, we'd, we'd already written the script um, when we were, like, senior year of college, because we were planning to shoot it then. But then we'd sort of, that had fallen apart, and we'd made Magna Head instead during that time. And so we just kind of stuck in the drawer. And then uh, we moved out to L.A. after we graduated, and we bummed around a little bit. And this was right when 9-11 happened. And we eventually came to L.A. to settle in, like, December or something, and uh, Worm went to work for a sandwich shop, and I went to work for the video store. Wait, oh, and I want to interrupt. We have to switch rooms. I've paced every way I can pace in that. Day. All right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Driving me mad. <laughs> so I was working at the video store, and we were there for like six months, living the life of you know clerks, and uh, I was getting really bored and frustrated. You know, it's like six months, and we're not rich and famous yet. What the heck is going on, man? So I decided to schmooze with the people who came into my video store. This was uh, in Sherman Oaks. Um, and I, I could tell, you know, the people would come in. Like, a lot of the people who were customers there worked at, like, special effects shops and that kind of thing. Because they would come in, like, renting all sci-fi movies or something. And I'd ask them what they were doing. I, you know, so I was schmoozing with the business people to try and uh, find some kind of in. Because I was sick of working at the video store. And then uh, Scott Hillenbrand came in, and I'd never met him before, but he was uh, renting, I think maybe Night of the Living Dead, Evil Dead, and Dead Alive. So was he probably planning on Dead being in the title? 
Well, I was like, so you must be researching some kind of zombie movie here, right? Because, I mean, if he was a real zombie fan, for one thing, he'd already have seen these three particular movies a million times. He'd be renting something weirder. He was just watching zombie movies. He was like, oh, yeah, we're thinking about it. Uh, Yo, uh, you might have seen my last movie, King Cobra. And I was like, you know, I've seen that movie, sure, with Pat Morita. You know, Worm and I had rented it because we love uh, low-budget horror movies. I bet you can relate, Jonathan. Yes, I can. And I've seen King Cobra. (laughs) And I own Pinata Survival Island. So then I I told him, you know, well, you know, I myself, uh, I recently graduated from film school. Scott said, oh, you got any great scripts laying around? I was like, hell yeah. He gave me his card and told me to find our two most marketable scripts and bring them over. So I called one and I said, oh, he wants two scripts, man. And one of our scripts was a zombie movie, and I thought he wanted to make a zombie movie. Uh, so we were like, we had a zombie script, which was called Janitors Don't Die. And I was like, well, maybe for our second script we should include the college sex comedy or a college sex farce maybe even was it the title at the time. I feel like you're shortchanging the story slightly at this point in its severity. <laughs> because what actually happened was when we graduated from college, we'd made every script we wrote. You know, Hey, Stop Stabbing Me, Murder Made Easy, Frankenstein's Roommate, whatever. If we wrote a script, we wrote it so we could shoot it. And they always tell you not to come out to Hollywood or not contact an agent unless you have, like, a big pile of projects just so you don't... Because nobody wants to run in that situation where you're like, here's my idea. And they go, I don't like it. What else you got? And you're like, that's it. I've been working on that same script for 10 years, you know. Right. Um, so when we got out of here, we didn't have any projects. Uh, we wasted a bunch of time rewriting a movie we had made already uh, called Movie from the Future. And when we rewrote it, it became, like, preposterously expensive and like it would have been a $120 million. Yeah, we're just like, this is a ridiculous comedy. Nobody's going to spend that much money uh, on this movie. And so then we decided, uh, we had some other friends who really liked Hey, Stop Stabbing Me. And they were like, we should either remake Hey, Stop Stabbing Me or maybe do like a sequel or something. So we kind of liked the idea of doing a sequel, but not like a like out-and-out sequel where it was, like, literally what, following the... the first one, so we should make it standalone, you know? Yeah, kind of like Desperado to uh, El Mariachi or Evil Dead 2 to Evil Dead 1. So we were like, well, what we do, we did really like kind of the tone of a Herman Schumacher movie. Again, kind of the Hitchcockian wrong man of just this poor schmuck who finds himself in this, like, preposterous situation. And that's what Janitor's No Die was. It's starring Herman Schumacher in a sort of a... Hey, Stop Stabbing Me sequel. Um, yeah, he comes a janitor, and then the, the building he works in is overrun by zombies. And, uh, Does he fight anybody with, like, a mop? Yeah, he, I mean, he has a, well, one character has a mop with, like, a sword inside. You know, like, the mop is, in fact, just a disguise for his, like, samurai sword. Like an um, evil duke would have, you know, except if he were a janitor. Unfortunately, <laughs> this, awesome. movie, this movie preceded the, like, zombie craze, which is part of why we haven't, like, really pursued anything as far as that script's concerned. Because there's already been, like, Shaun of the Dead and stuff like that. Um, and it's not really, like, an out-and-out zombie script like Shaun of the Dead was. But nonetheless, when we wrote it, zombies weren't quite as 
you know, all over the place as they have become. Yeah, we wanted to bring zombies back, and then zombies went and came back all on their own. Yeah, all on their own. Um, Anyway, I now realize where that story was going. So we wrote that script, like, mere months before Pat's encounter with Scott Hillenbrand. I feel like we basically just finished it right at that point. Yeah, it was like, so that was our only script. We weren't going to show them our movie from the future redux because, I mean, the, no one would want to make that movie. And they'd asked us for, like, a couple of our scripts, and literally the only other thing we had to show them was Dorm Days, or it was, as it was called at the time, a college sex comedy because we couldn't come up with a title. Um, that was, like, the only other thing we'd ever written. So we're like, all right, fine, we'll send them out. Right here. And then, um, as far as we know, to this date, they have never read Janitors Don't Die. We feel like they looked at the two, like, you know, cover pages, and they were like, Janitors Don't Die, college sex comedy. Hey, that has the word sex in it. I'll read this one first. <laughs> and then they, like, immediately called us and wanted it, so. Yeah, within days it was sold. And then I only worked at the video store for another year and a half. Really? I immediately quit the. I immediately quit the sandwich shop. I, I realized a year later, stupidly, that I quit it because a they paid us like nothing, basically. I mean, not literally nothing, almost nothing, uh, as far as how much. For one day's one. Yeah. So do you guys still have another job or is screenwriting? No, no. Starting with, um, I don't know, I don't even remember what project. Several projects ago, we were finally able to break through to the we are legitimately professional screenwriters. But at the time, I was only a legitimately professional screenwriter in the sense that I had sold a script and was unemployed otherwise. So at a bar, you can go up and say, I am a screenwriter, when somebody asks you what you do for a living. Yeah, that's no, what I say. say that anyway. <laughs> you say that anyway? Regardless of what they've sold. Um, but, uh, yes, is that story done, I now realize? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah, I guess so. So I met him in the video store. <laughs> and uh, that, that's really cool. That's a really cool way. That's why I wanted to bring that up is because I've, I've, I've heard this story a lot. You guys say it in interviews. I'm sure you're kind of sick of saying it, but. Uh, well, not at this point, because it's been a while between interviews. I actually, um, for Dome Days 1, during part of the, like, limited theatrical release that they attempted that I had previously mentioned, um, they did a series of press junkets in three different cities. And one of them just randomly happened to be Minneapolis, Minnesota. So they actually sent us along not because they thought anyone would give a crap who wrote the movie, but just so they could be like, Minnesota natives, Warren Miller and Patrick Casey. Um, so we got to go, and that was fun. But there was one night where um, Pat immediately fell, like, horrifically ill on the press junket and had to be sent home, home meeting his parents' house in Minnesota, not back to L.A. Um, but we went to the University of Minnesota, where I, in fact, graduated from, and during the screening there, after the like, Q, like there was a Q, after the screening there was a Q and A, and I was up there, and they decided to like make me tell the story of how the script was sold. But at that point, we we just been telling the story like nonstop. Yeah, and I, I especially just, like, hated the story. That was part of why I got sick. Really? 
And uh, you know, it was it was like Jude Law in uh, I Heart Huckabees. Uh, anymore, telling the same story. Yeah, telling the uh, Shania Twain mayonnaise story. Um, and also, I mean, I never had to tell the story because it happened to Pat. I realized actually after the fact, I wasn't even sick of. I mean, I was sick of telling it to friends, but I was mainly just sick of like hearing it. So like some person in the audience asked the question. I don't even remember if it was like a real question or if it was like a one of those stupid like prompted questions. Either way. I told it in, like, the most amazingly shitty fashion possible. And I actually got yelled at, not by, like, the directors or producers or anything. I don't even think the directors were or producers were there at this point. I got, like, yelled at by the, like, like PR staff or whatever you would call them. It was a really weird moment. For doing such a shitty Q&A? Yeah, no, for that specific question. They're like, people are really interested in that story. You gotta you can tell it, make it sound interesting. And I'm like, I'm sick of telling it. And now, you know, obviously, I've later realized that you're all like actors or, you know, celebrities talk about that, about how just doing like endless press junkets where you have to keep switching from interviewer to interviewer and telling the same stories over and over again, but trying to make it sound like you're telling it for the first time. At that point in time, I was not that familiar with that concept. Um, and in my mind, the world had heard the story a million times and never needed to hear it again. Yeah, so, but, but now, you know, it's, it's time to bring you back for one interview at least. Yeah, it's been, it's been years, you know, where all our other friends have heard and become bored with the story. So <laughs> in some so, ways, it's fun to tell it again. So hopefully new people will hear and be like, oh, well, that's an interesting, maybe I should move out to L.A. and work at a video store. Well, especially the, the silliest thing about the story is how, um, I don't want to say cliche it is, but I actually at that same Q&A where I was boring the world with my uh, shitty rendition of how we sold the script, um, like a guy and a girl came up to me, I guess they were going out or something, um, and both of them wanted to be screenwriters and were hoping to move to L.A. after they graduated and they were going to the U of M. I went to the U of M. And obviously this was only like a year or two after I'd been at the U of M. So they're like, oh, yeah, I mean, what's your advice? And I'm like, I don't know, get a job at the Sherman Oaks Hollywood Video. It's like we didn't – I hate to say it because it's like the enraging kind of advice that isn't helpful to anyone, but – we didn't really do anything in particular to sell the script. We didn't have an agent. We'd only been living in L.A. for six months. Um, I mean, defensively, I guess, one could just say you've got to write a good script. Yeah, I mean, that's really true because it's like I worked at the video store, but it's like I could have been schmoozing anywhere. What sold that script is the fact that we had a script that was, you know, extremely filmable and completely done, and it was ready to go. Well, that's actually... I mean, now, years later, thinking over this moment where these poor bastards asked me this question that I had no answer to, um, I've also realized that it's not even like writing a script that's so great, because obviously I'm sure a lot of people would watch Dorm Days 1 and be like, well, what are you talking about? That script isn't great. But it was exactly what those, the Hillenbrand brothers, those particular producer-directors were looking for. Right. And obviously there's a zillion producers and directors out there. So that's really the trick is to have material that someone 
really wants, and we did. We read. That's why they didn't even read Janitors Don't Die. They someone wanted them, like some other production company wanted them to make a zombie movie that already made Pinata and King Cobra. They were sick of making horror movies, especially monster horror movies. They really wanted to like branch out and do a comedy or something. So and again, they saw the opportunity. They were like, "Hey, this is a comedy." comedy. You can like, and they also did Game Box 1.0 for you guys, right? Or I'd say we did that for them, probably. For them, that was, it was basically um, that was months after the press junket. It was before Dorm Days wanted to even come out, before it had become a National Lampoon movie, and before. Well, I mean, no, it was already a National Lampoon movie, sorry. It was uh, after the press junket, but before it actually came out on video. Um, and we were working on. They had had an idea of doing like a modern update of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because the story is, you know, in the public domain, so anyone can do it. Um, so we've been working on that while we were back in Minnesota. And it was actually, I think, yeah, we were driving back from Minnesota to L.A. And we were somewhere in, like, Nevada or something when we got a call from them telling us to stop working on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and that they had this new idea that they wanted us to write. So when we got back, we met with them. Which we didn't and, really mind, because uh, even though Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was coming along pretty good, like what we had was good, we were also horribly stuck at the point we were at. Yeah, because they had this, like, specific twist they wanted to have at the end, which, I mean, I'll give them credit for, was a slightly interesting twist. We were um, having so, trouble making it work. Yeah, because it, it was one of those twists that's, like, great on paper, but it doesn't necessarily flow organically with the movie. Um so then they had this other idea about a guy who gets stuck inside a video game that they'd come up with a few years ago. Yeah, and they told us the idea, like, before. Anyway, and they, they had uh, whoever was funding the movie, you know, they had X amount of dollars to make it, and they wanted to make it fairly quickly, and they were like, can you guys write this? We can't pay you that much. Ha, ha, ha. So we'll write it quick. And we were like, all right, you know, if you're not paying us that much, we'll we'll write it quick indeed. <laughs> and, that was um, actually the, yeah. That was the most fun we've ever had writing a movie um, for money. I mean, it's hard to remember way back um, to all the other movies. Obviously, writing Hey, Stop, Stab Me was a lot of fun. But I think we actually kind of went home after our first meeting when they told us how much money they were going to pay us and kind of did the math, you know, as far as determined how, so much, how much they're paying us. <laughs> yeah, how much, how much time should we spend on it to make it actually seem like this it's not like they're just paying us and like you know canned food and preserves or something. Uh, <laughs> but we actually had, really had a lot of fun on that script because it was their idea, and they gave us the basic story rundown. Have you seen this, Jonathan? I haven't yet because of um, it's yeah, not out. well, it, it, I just looked you know on Amazon.com, but it was not on Amazon.com. It's on Amazon.ca, the Canada Amazon. And it's oh, yeah. coming out uh, April 10th, 2007. Yeah, one of the actors told us that. They did, like, the directors didn't tell us. <laughs> that, that was they nice of them. Us. As far as we've heard from them, the movie isn't coming out. Um, but it is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they gave us the basic rundown on the, the plot is that, you know, he gets stuck inside a video game and his girlfriend tragically died previously and so the girl in the game looks like her and that's basically what we took is that outline right there from them because they had more to it and we basically threw everything else out because they didn't really know much about video games 
And the, they you know, knew the amazingly about little about video games. They knew I mean, very they're like, little they're in their forties, you know. There's no reason for them to know that much, but it was definitely kind of a, a fun, like, generation gap as far as working with them on that. Because we tried to explain to them, um, well, trying to explain to them what Grand Theft Auto was 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 definitely interesting. Were you trying? Were you guys trying to do like a more uh, up-to-date video game or? Because I know, I'm sure you guys played like, you know, used to play like Nintendo and stuff, but Game Box sounds like Game Gear and or GameCube and uh, Xbox together or something. Yeah, well, we, we didn't want to call it Game Box, but... Uh, the, I, the movie was actually originally called Game Over, and even while we were working on the, the movie, we kept telling him that there was Spy Kids 3 Game Over was coming out. And for, like, the longest time, they just, like, kept ignoring that. I, don't, I, I think maybe, for whatever reason, they were just mistakenly assuming that Spy Kids 3 was not going to be... I mean, the movie's horseshit, but it was like they thought the movie wasn't going to have any sort of, like... Gamebox was briefly called, um, or they, they talked about calling it Gamer, which I really like. But anyway, it's Gamebox 1.0. No, no use crying over spilled milk there. But it was we definitely wanted it to represent um, or have something to do with what modern video games were like. Like when the Hillen Brands were originally pitching it to us, they were like talking about you know wizards and elves and I mean stuff that you might be in video games indeed. But it was like as though that's all it was. Like the last last game they'd played had been you know what's that game that he's playing in big where you gotta you know tell you, like pick up rock. Put key in lock, that sort of thing. I mean, in my mind, I felt like they'd never even played a video game. They just thought that all video games were like an RPG, basically. So, like, and then Charlie will walk over and talk to the elves, and we're just like, what video game is this? <laughs> yeah, we wanted to make it more like, A, also they had it where he just gets a CD um, that turns out to be, you know, the evil video game, and he basically, I don't even know how they wanted it to work, but we thought that, because... Um, we gave, had the idea that he'd be a video game tester because we had some friends who had been video game testers, and as a matter of fact, still are. And I, I was a video game tester for a while after we wrote after the movie. After we wrote the movie. <laughs> that's, that's ironic, I guess. So we made the Which character a video game tester, but we, we had some inside info, you know, from people who really did it, and then... The setup basically is that he gets the, a new video game system, which is sort of a virtual reality. But once he puts it on, he, he gets sucked inside the game. And in the movie, like it's different from what they told us it was going to be when we were writing it. But they ended up doing like all the backgrounds with uh, computer graphics and just the actors in front of green screens. So it's kind of like they're walking around just inside the video game. And we wanted to basically make it sort of like a Grand Theft Auto type game in addition to some other things, but where he's actually walking around like in a big virtual world full of, you know, AIs to uh, interact with, et cetera. And I mean, Gamebox, yeah, we only we worked on it for about two weeks, and I'm pretty yeah, happy with how it turned out. I was going to say, it's actually hard to say much about it because the period in which we were working on the script was so brief. Um, and then I, uh, Pat wasn't able to go to the set because the day that I went to the set for literally an hour and a half, Pat was, um, like, deathly ill. Oh, that's yeah, and the shoot we was also, really short. We put it off until almost the end of the shoot to go visit the set, yeah, and then I got really We had so little involvement with it. And, yeah, they, again, like Pat was just saying, they ended up shooting the movie completely differently than they 
were like initially told us to, like when we were thinking up scenes and stuff, we were thinking of it in the context of the initial plan, which was to shoot the entire movie, but they would shoot the stuff in the game with like a different camera and then do like a visual effect to it to make it look just like slightly fake. So we were kind of thinking of it as like when our hero was in the video game, it wasn't going to be like Tron or something where it's like a human standing in this like bizarre background. It would more just like, I don't even know what to compare it to, like uh, that horrible Robin Williams movie, What Dreams May Come or something. But basically it was like a human just in a world that like looked slightly wrong. But then they ended up doing it like Sin City, um, you know, 300 style, like Pat was saying, just all in front of the green screens. Yeah, lower budget and not as awesome looking, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, that movie cost, like, one-third as much as Dorm Days 1, which itself cost less than a million dollars, so. Yeah, because, I mean, I know they said in uh, the commentary that the Hill and Brand said that it was it was definitely an independent film. I mean, it was financed independently. And yeah, for sure. So. All their movies have been financed independently so far. Even Dorm Days 3 was. Yeah, I'm surprised uh, Hollywood's not knocking on their door or your guys' doors. You know, I don't think Hollywood yeah. knows that we exist um, <laughs> for the most part. I, I, I'm, I've been waiting. I was expecting it to happen with Dorm Days 2. Now I'm not expecting it to happen with Dorm Days 3. I actually just want it to happen. I'm waiting to see, because I've had like a subscription to Entertainment Weekly since I was in high school. It's not like a great magazine, but what I like about it, it's, it's the, like, entertainment magazine, you know. So anything, you know, anything you read, like, online um, will inevitably a week or two later finally show up in Entertainment Weekly uh, as kind of, like, proof that it's, like, finally made it to, like, the popular consciousness. So I'm waiting for some blurb in Entertainment Weekly, just, like, in their video section of a review of Dorm Days 3 where they make some crack about how they've never even heard of Dorm Days 1 and 2. That's what I'm waiting for. I kind of want to unfavorably to some kind of Paris Hilton movie or something. Uh, or other, other National Lampoon movies. National Lampoon's Thanksgiving Day starring Judge Reinhold or whatever. Possible, like, possibly like uh, Bottoms Up, the new movie with Paris Hilton. Uh, yeah. Maybe it'll compare it to, to that. Is that a National Lampoon's bottoms up? No, no. Even though it sounds like it could be. No, yeah, I remember uh, the, the game box. Um, like a year, actually it was almost, I think it was more than a year before they finished game box. They had a screening at, I can't even remember what it's called. It was in Santa Monica and it's some like big international um, film. Oh, the American film like, market. American AF, film market. American film market. Yeah, AFM, where, like, uh, you know, foreign distributors will come to see, like, independently financed movies to pick up, you know, for uh, foreign distribution. And they showed, like, the first half hour or 40 minutes they'd made of Game Box. Which was the like we of it as well. Yeah, and the movie, I still never fully understood what our involvement was with the company, because I know they didn't finance it, but there's a company called Showcase Entertainment. And we were there at their show, and there were all their other movies were there, too, like the posters and stuff. And it was just, like, so kind of embarrassing in a way to see the other movies that we were, like, part of the same family. Chevy Chase um, was at that party. Who? Chevy Chase. 
Um, yeah. Um, I think he was in the movie that Michael Jackson was in. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a perfect example. I don't think that movie right ever came out, possibly. I mean, I, who knows? There's more like looking at it and just being like, oh my god, this, this is where our movie is. I don't. Uh, Michael Jackson, Chevy Chase, and there was the the guy who looks exactly like the Pope. Although now I think about it, that guy's out of a job. His Pope died. Yeah, his Pope did die. Aww. I took a picture with him. I wonder what happened to that picture. Maybe, maybe the, the next movie he's in is a time travel movie. You know, where uh, he yeah. gets to play the Pope again. The Pope takes over the world. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe he's the evil. Uh, you know, he's the evil uh, villain. I don't know, but uh, yeah, that's that's funny that Showcase Entertainment because that's how it's all the trailer is. You know, that's that's the official site. Oh, that's, that trailer, oh, the game box oh, my. trailer, that's <laughs> worst thing I've ever seen. I think. Yeah, that's an old trailer that has the, like the graphics look better in the movie than they do in that horrible old trailer. Well, I think I mean, um, that was still fun. That that that's what it seemed like. It seemed like a low budget, you know, video game movie, and it was kind of fun looking, you know. Well, my worry for game boxes, obviously, you're coming from a place where you've seen some of our other movies like them. Although I will tell you that game box really bears no resemblance to anything else we've ever done. But nonetheless, does it have a lot of comedy in it? Oh, almost none. Yeah, not much. Like, it's more like, um, yeah, it's like a a thriller, basically, I guess but kind of aimed a little bit more at, like, teens and kids, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, but as far as what I've read on, like, message boards and stuff of people who've seen that initial showcase trailer, I mean, as far as I know, there isn't even, like, a newer trailer. That's still the only one floating out there. Uh, people seem pretty horrified by that. And knowing what I know about the movie, there is a lot about the movie that kind of just makes it perfect for, uh, like, ridicule. Um, yeah, I'm not going to take offense at anyone making fun of it. Yeah, I, mean, I understand it completely. Two-thirds <laughs> of the movie are special effects. You know, like, proportionally, it has the same number of special effects shots, and it is like Fellowship of the Rings, you know? Except for the fact that they made it for, like, $300,000. So the effects aren't very good, but there's a lot of them. Hey, but it's got um, gumption, you know, gumption. So uh, no, we, we, we got some good stuff in there. I mean, I think there's there's definitely um, a few good scenes. We had one really awesome scene that ended up getting cut before they even shot it, which was sad. But uh, uh, hopefully, some people will see it and they'll look past how awful um, the production values are for the most part. And, yeah, actually, you know, I think there is an audience for it, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely gonna buy it. Uh, when it comes out, I guess I'm going to have to go through Canada. Um, well, no, no, uh, wait till I think April, we heard, is coming out in April. Even in uh, even in America? I mean, that's when it's coming out, in America. Okay, well... That's it's... what I was saying before, that I, I heard that from one of the actors. The directors have not even informed us that it's about to come out on video here, but I'm pretty sure it is. Okay, cool, yeah, I'll definitely uh, try to pick it up in my uh, local like Best Buy or whatever. And uh, because, I mean, that was one of the things I wanted to see because it was the one that, you know, that you guys had done before Dorm Days 2 and before, you know, and before now, after shooting Dorm Days 3, it still hasn't come out. So, 
you know, I'm anxious to see it. Those yeah, computer graphics take a long time, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah and they, well, that was everything because it was so low budget. They basically had, like, two guys doing all these effects, and uh, <laughs> we felt kind of bad for them in a way, like, because uh, their, their office was right across from the Hillenbrand's regular office, and the couple times that I poked my head in there, there was just, like, these two or three guys in this, like, horrible little room, clearly like, working 24 hours a day, just trying to come up with the, again, two-thirds of this movie are special effects, and they had to do them all. Normally a movie that has that percentage of special effects would have some sort of gigantic uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, Star Wars prequel-style uh, army of computer technicians working on it. Gamebox had, like, two or three. So do you guys think that, um, I mean, now you've seen it recently, right? Like, what would be the final cut? Of no, that was actually a long time ago that we saw what was time was the final cut. That was, uh, the premiere was, I mean, that was like a year ago. <laughs> and they still hadn't released it? I guess they had to go back and reshoot some more stuff. I mean, that's no, for no reshoots, but they might have changed some stuff since then. Yeah, we, that's. I don't know if they changed anything. I mean, there were brief talks they were having of just like out and out remaking the movie. I don't know if maybe that's why it took so long, but it's been done actually for a while. I mean, yeah, it's available in the UK and I guess Canada, as you were saying. Well, no, I mean, Canada's not released yet. It was re- it's going to be released in April in Canada. Oh, okay. So I'm guessing, but that was the only Amazon that had it. I wonder yeah. if that, huh, wait a minute. Now that you're saying this, I wonder if the reason the directors haven't told us that the movie's coming out is because it still isn't, and the reason the actors think it's coming out is because it's coming out in Canada. I wonder if that's what's happening. But Again. at least it's coming out. I mean, people can go to Amazon.ca, you know, in April and get it, you know. And, I mean, isn't it cheaper to get it in Canada than... Well, I'm, I'm hoping, for good or for bad, that just um, the years that this awful trailer has been online, I'm hoping that there's, like, a slow pocket forming of people. I assume most of them want to see it because they want to, like, laugh at it, but I don't really care at this point. But nonetheless, a pocket of people who are waiting for the movie to come out. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I've only seen it once. I want a copy so bad. Of all of all the Hillenbrand movies we've made, four movies now, that's the one I most want to own, actually, more than the Dorm Days trilogy. Okay, I have no idea why. It I does <laughs> say... Um, Amazon.com is uh, releasing it on April 10th, 2007, like the American one. Oh, it does? All right. Good. Yeah, so that's that's good. Okay, so I guess it really is coming out, and they just haven't informed you yet. But uh, the cover just looks horrible. It's not like the poster cover that was up there. Describe the cover to us. Uh, Let's see. It's like of a hand with uh, with with the controller. And it's got this really like silver grayish kind of background. It's just yeah, I've seen that. I saw that last week. Uh, you saw that? Yeah, dude. Um, look it up on my computer on Amazon.com, you know, or Amazon. Yeah, you can do that, dude. Yeah, yeah I guess you can ch- check it out. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's on there, and it's just uh, 
just like a but scary controller. Yeah, it tries to make it look like a scary horror thing. And is it like a ripoff of a Stay Alive? Maybe, maybe that's other. Live poster was man. Stay yeah. Alive was um, I think it was two severed hands holding um, like a game controller. That might be it. That might be it. Because it is like a hand, just one hand though. You know, holding the thing. It looks like the guy is dead or something or whatever. You know, the hand's dying. Like, oh, I'm so excited. Um, one of my uh, one of my good buddies, Ryan. He is like really good buddies with the director of Stay Alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pat and I got invited to the premiere of that movie, uh, which was interesting because, uh, like, as far as just like slug lines go. That and Gamebox have the same premise. In fact, the movies could not possibly be, like, more different, aside from the fact that they're about characters being killed by a video game. But other than that, like, as far as what's going on in the stories is not at all similar. Um, but the Hillenbrands were really worse that that movie was ripping them off. So I find it kind of funny that this cover seems a little ripped off from Stay Alive. <laughs> that's that's funny. Oh, is that, wow. a, is that a GameCube controller? What is he holding? That's more like a PS2 controller, isn't it? Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know. But gosh, that's 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 funny that they ripped off Stay Alive after Stay Alive. Uh, I guess kind of ripped off Gamebox. I mean, it, it may not even have been them. It might have been uh, Lionsgate. Oh, did Lions, is Lionsgate? In any case, I'll, yeah, I'll say this for this cover. Off either. It was just an idea that wasn't that original, so two people seem to have it at the same time. I'm sure it's happened yeah, I mean, before. It's all from Tron, right? But uh, I'll say this about this cover that I'm staring at right now. And uh, I'd rent this over the initial cover that we'd seen. The one with the, with uh, Daniel Fischel and the other and the guy, Nate. Nate Richard. Yeah. Yeah, that one looked like a movie for little kids to me. Um, I mean, it was more unique than this. Like, this looks really generic. I think I would rent this solely based on how stupid the title is. <laughs> like, like looking, looking at the hand holding the controller, I'd be like, Game Box 1.0. I wonder what the summary on the back of the DVD. And I'd look up that. at the top, and I'd be like, Daniel Fischel to paint. Oh my God! We have to rent this movie. All right, my my big question: are, Were you guys uh, Boy Meets World fans at all? Like, um, I was not. Pat, you were, weren't you? Or no, not really. At the time that it was actually on, I started watching like the reruns, like during the afternoon in college. Sometimes, you know, that's my what I. My little brother was a huge. Uh, yeah, my little brother loved it. So yeah, I was... loved Danielle particularly, you know. So how uh, was it working I... with her? Um, it was awesome on. Uh, Dorm Days 1, um, her attitude, I don't, I don't think she was super happy about working on Dorm Days 2. And then Game Box, again, Pat was sick and I was only there. I showed up for an hour and a half to get a free lunch. Um, I mean, basically, she's cool. She's a good actress. Like yeah. Her. But did she, is she in Dorm Days 3 or? She's not she's in, Dorm, not Days in Dorm Days 3. Oh wow! What what was the thing? Was she just kind of getting sick of doing it, or? Well, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to get into it too much. I'm not sure how uh, 
how she cooler, feel about that. Cooler, to talk about, but. Um, but I do feel like getting this out there because as we, we had this conversation many times with the directors while pre-planning Dorm Days 3 as far as what audience perception would be. They basically did not ask back any of our quote-unquote like name actors, as you would call them, like Danielle Fischel. And so or forth. Jennifer Lyons? Or or? Jennifer Lyons is back for Part 3. Oh, okay. I guess I just assume most people wouldn't call her, like, a name actress because you don't see her and go, like, oh, it's Topanga. You know? Yeah, because, you know, you had in the first one you had uh, Danielle Fischel and um, Ashley Banks, you know. Ashley whatever. Banks, and we had yeah. Chris Owen, the Shermanator from uh, American Pie. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and Patrick Renna. Patrick Renna, or as... He unfortunately, Patrick Renner didn't even have, like, a character name to constantly be yelled at him. He was just uh, the fat kid from the Sandlot. <laughs> that movie had too many characters to remember all their names. Exactly. But so you didn't, like, you didn't name. know his name. You just knew, yeah, who he was. Um, but for Dome Days 3, they're basically, like, like, at that point, they decided that the main selling point of Dorm Days 3 was that it was Dorm Days 3, and no one cared who was in it. Um, and, I mean, I won't, I won't bother getting into, you know, the conversations we had about that, about whether or not we felt... So we were going to go with a smaller array of characters, too, because we were going so far away. Yeah, they're like, we can't... Dorm Days 2 had, I think they told us, 22 lead speaking roles, um, which is fairly high and preposterous for a movie. Uh, so for Dorm Days 3, because, because, you know, you go to Romania, you got to pay everyone to be there, even when they're not shooting, because it's not like they can go back to their apartment or whatever. Uh, so they, we had to cut the cast in, like, half, and that was that was definitely an awkward process, because after the first two movies, we, we'd become good friends with, like, a lot of the actors and stuff, some of which we had to cut. And Danielle was one of those people. Yeah, and this made some hard decisions. They decided, like, the um, Marlon Lynn, that was her and Jennifer Lyons, that duo, they kind of decided that they were, they, they, they were, they were done seeing, or not done, bored seeing whatever uh, else they had to do and kind of wanted to, like, split them up. And, uh, I mean... Who knows exactly why they didn't want who they didn't want, but well, we didn't thought... keep Jennifer Lyons because it was decided that um, people wanted to see where else we could go with like her as a performer. And we all and, agreed it's hilarious. We wanted to see yeah, I, I think people actually. I mean, like the the places that we sent her in three um, are some of the best stuff in the movie. And Jen Lyons is just, like, an inherently appealing and hilarious performer. Just, like, her demeanor demeanor and voice and look. And we really played off that a lot. She actually plays two different characters in the movie. Who uh, who plays uh, two different characters? Jennifer Lyons. Oh, Sorry, Jennifer. Maybe I didn't make really? Clear. Yep. Oh, that's that's cool. That That's an interesting idea. Yeah, so I actually say Dawn Days 3 is in... It's more of like a direct sequel to two than, I mean, it doesn't really follow in with one. Like, as far as what the characters were like in two compared to one, three is a lot, is a lot 
or I'm trying to think of how to say this. You know what I'm talking about, Pat. What's the best way to yeah, say it? Yeah, well, that? like that three, it has slightly more of the tone of two, and the, the the characters are more like they were in two. But in three, also, we tried to get back to more of like having it be like a farce that really hangs together really well because two didn't really hang together all that well. Which people, you know, and when they they came out, that's when we really discovered that there were some people who loved Dorm Days One because they didn't like. That was a weird discovery. <laughs> we did we really writing We didn't really think that anyone yeah. liked one. Uh, we assumed that, uh, that there were like four people total who liked one. And other than that, like no one did. And then people and came out of the woodwork when they saw the. Yeah, once two came out, oh, yeah. and they were like, "I love Far One." Two really betrayed its legacy, and we were like, "Oh, wow, that sucks." So they wanted you to do another comedy bears because I I just don't see that working as a, you know, night the first sequel. You know, that's I why I was glad again, it didn't. Like I'd say three three is perfectly halfway between one and two. I mean. Not to say that now this one has finally perfected the uh, the idea. It may just prove officially that no one wants to see this kind of movie at all. Um, <laughs> doesn't matter what it's in between. Um, We're so optimistic. Yeah, but we we took the you know the like dense everything happens for a reason. All the characters end up like affecting each other's plot lines from one. And then we also took what we felt worked in two, which was more of the like standalone, um, almost standard National Lampoon style. Like you could you could just watch a specific sequence. You could you could you would chapter skip to a sequence, having never seen the movie, and still hopefully laugh, even though you don't know who the characters are, you don't know any of the stuff that's happened before the scene, but the scene itself is just funny, which was our entire approach to two. Um, which is we realized after the fact was maybe we should have kept a little bit of the uh, dense plot structure from one rather than just have it be this like freewheeling nothing necessarily happens for a reason kind of movie. So still yeah it still had that sort of like farcical element from one but it just didn't like hang together or make as much sense. Partially we just didn't get through that many drafts of it before they told us we were done and they were ready to shoot on part yeah. two. Like, when they said, oh, yeah, this is great, we're going to shoot it, and we were kind of like, huh? We didn't really think it was ready, but that's that's the movie. <laughs> All right. Um, I really liked in Dorm Days 2 that you guys had the Weekend at Bernie's, um, like, I guess, spoof or homage. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's in there. I, <laughs> I was going to say. I'm trying to remember had... about how it got in there or it is. Did you I guys actually write that or not? That they loved oh, no, it. we wrote that. Uh, in fact, um... One of the fun, and when I say fun, I mean this in the strictest, like, screenwriting and, like, some sort of a manual labor-style job. But when I say that one of the funnest parts of two, I remember, actually, was regarding that scene when we threw out the blah, 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 we came to Bernie's. And one thing about the Hillen brands that we've learned over the years, I feel like we can talk about this freely because there's no chance that they're uh, listening to this right now. <laughs> um, but they like latch on to stuff, um, which sometimes is great. Like if it's an idea that we're really into and they latch on to it and we're like, yes, well, we don't have to fight for that anymore. But then also every now and then 
we'll just be like randomly talking about something and they'll like latch on to like a part of it that we didn't care about or think was important and possibly we were just tossing out as a suggestion yeah. or you know and the, a funny so idea kind of sound because we had it we had in an idea that um professor cavendish is the name of the character played played by charles um shaughnessy or is it oh shaughnessy i think it's just shaughnessy just shaughnessy from he was the um like handsome guy from the nanny with Fran Drescher. Anyway, his character dies, and there's like a brief period where he's rolling around in a wheelchair, and people don't realize that he's dead. Um, and we wanted this to be very brief. Like, we wanted like a couple jokes from it before it was just like gone. We didn't want it to be like, there's a section of the movie where he's a corpse and wacky stuff's happening to him. But we just, we threw out, like, a, oh, yeah, you know, kind of Weekend at Bernie style. And, oh, man, did they, they loved that. And there was, a, there was a period where they wanted, like, just a huge, endless sequence of Weekend at Bernie jokes. And I think we actually successfully whittled down to what is in the movie. Which they turned padded, out pretty good, like the way it is. Yeah, it's, it's funny. They padded it out ever so slightly with, like, a few extra action shots of, you know, just him, like, aimlessly uh, rolling down a hallway and stuff. It's just funny when you ask if it was a weekend at Bernie's homage, and I think, and I'm like, would we, do we want an homage weekend at Bernie's? Did we like that movie? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> I did, uh, one of my... Was it against our fans or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, it's hard to say what kind of fans, because we were all little kids when that movie come, came out. Um, I loved Weekend at Bernie's 1. Weekend yeah. at Bernie's 2, I thought, was terrible. But when I was a I kid, loved Weekend man, at Bernie's 2. I, like, I liked Weekend at Bernie's 1 as well, but I haven't seen it in, like, 15 years. So I really yeah, neither have I. When, when that movie came out, man, I thought it was the bee's knees. That movie was hilarious. Um, but I did remember that there was a guy who was dead, and people didn't think he was dead. It was like, <laughs> so let's just do that. I mean, I thought I it was, that I thought it was a hilarious scene, I but I also noticed it was dialogue. kind of, hmm? I was just going to note that I loved Charles Shaughnessy, and having him deliver our dialogue was fantastic. Because we got a big speech for him, you know, where he's setting up the diamond, and... Uh, I had fun writing the big speech, but I always get nervous with a big speech about whether or not an actor can really carry it off. And Charles Shaughnessy was just so British and classy that everything he said sounded fantastic. And was that what you were looking for? Somebody who was, you were thinking that they were going to go with as a British comedy character? Well, I mean, yeah, I think we, we wanted him going to be British. Back, what are you saying? Oh, I think we wanted him to be British, basically, or stuffy in some way, you know. But no, also, he needed to be British, but I was going to say, going back to... Uh, what I was saying earlier as far as just writing something and then, you know, what the directors end up doing with it and, like, how we were approaching Dorm Days 2 as a script. Um, I remember there came a point, because when Dorm Days 1, they, like, asked us if we had any ideas of, like, who we, want, who, who we thought they should cast as the characters. We just had, like, endless ideas. Like, they were just, it was, like, pouring out of us, like they stabbed us in the aorta or something. Um, and they didn't listen to a single one of them. Not what? Like, they just didn't care what we said, ultimately. So then Dome Days 2, I remember when they asked us who we were thinking for parts, it was like neither Pat or I had any ideas because we actually just, like, wrote that 
obviously most of the characters we were repeating from the first movie, so that saves a lot of trouble. But our new characters, we hadn't even really been, like, thinking of people. We just, like, you know, made up a character, wrote lines. And they're like, who, bro, who do you think would be good for this? And we're like, um, uh. And I remember we went, like, home, and we were trying to, like, brainstorm to make sure that they didn't cast something crappy. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, the I remember. process, how you, you just put, you put in a new character, and you describe the character, and you don't have to worry about who's going to play it. Because, uh, you know, a casting director will cast it for you, and then you show up on set, and this character you made up months ago is just magically standing there in front of you. And it can be way fun sometimes, especially when the you know the actor is is cool and good. Charles uh, Shaughnessy was great in Dorm Days too. Um, uh, we also really really liked. I'm actually not entirely sure how to say his name, which is a little embarrassing. But Richard Real was what we would always call him. Um, he played the captain in Dorm Days too. And God, you look that guy up on the IMDb. It's it's actually mind-boggling. Like, most of his... He's like a middle-aged guy, but his credits really start in, like, 1988, 89. And since then, he's accumulated, like, 100 credits. Like, he's in every single movie you've ever seen. Uh, like, uh, the, mo- the one that I always, like, uh, can reference that people seem to remember is he's the guy in Office Space who gets downsized when they bring in the two people who like, are interviewing everyone, and he's the guy who really starts freaking out because his job is so, like, unnecessary. And then he goes home, and he tries to commit suicide. But, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember that guy he, now that you're saying that. But... Horrible, yeah, and he, and he gets in a horrible car accident, becomes paralyzed, and he has that dumb, like, board game idea that's, like, <laughs> the jump, jump to conclusions. Yeah. Um, that's the only most we remember him from. But if you look him up on the IMDb, it's like he's one of those guys – you're almost like horrified because you realize how little memory you can really retain you know, you've from seen movies him in you've like seen. Because like, I've, I've seen all these movies. Why can't I remember this guy? But he's like one of those guys, and he was ridiculous. He, like he was just like such a super pro. Um, oh my yeah, God, really he's been in a lot of movies. Uh, I'm looking at IMDb right now, and he's he's done more than a hundred. Yeah, but I mean, but, but look from that list starts. That's what I find most impressive. Like, there's a lot of people on the IMDb. 1977. No, no, but like, like look at the like. There's like a skip. Like he did that, and then like he didn't really. Oh, do it was much a ten-year skip. Yeah, it, it, yeah 1987. Exactly. Wow. And that's when it really he's starts. He's just been working. Third. You look up like Anthony Hopkins, and he's got like over a hundred, but he's been working since like the '60s. You know, like it's just been like continual since then. Richard Real is just insane. Starts I've done in 175. It's, it's nonsensical. He played uh, Donald Sutherland in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, basically. Uh, what? He played the Don Sutherland role, or the, the character yeah. that Donald Sutherland played in the uh, Christy Swanson. Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. He played that on the TV show. Oh, really? Like, yeah. Oh, was it in the beginning or? I can't. It was. It was a later episode. It was like a flashback to stuff that happened to her at her like old high school. Um, I remember talking to him about it on Dorm Days too, where he was saying how like initially because it was the Donald Sutherland character. He was kind of hoping that he would have, like, a reoccurring gig. 
and was like kind of, you know, a little sad that that was it. Oh, yeah, the, I mean. The TV show decided to, like, really split off from the uh, Christy Swanson movie. Yeah, you're right. He's been in all these, uh, like, The Fugitive and Lethal Weapon 4, and I don't remember him in yeah. any Casino? of them. Exactly. You don't remember him in any of them, but he was there, and he's always playing, like, a cop for the most part, detective something, you know. <laughs> Sergeant. Sergeant, yeah, captain. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Captain News Captain in Dorm Days, too. But, uh, that, that's one of the really fun things about, like, actually getting to work legitimately in the industry, you know, from... Because we had way more fun doing Hey, Stop Stapping Me than we had doing any of the Dorm Days movies because we had that nice feeling, like, you know, again, when we wrote the script, we just looked at it and we are like, yes. I don't know what just happened, but this all just came together and worked. Um, and then we made the movie, and that just, like, all felt right. We didn't have any problems. Um, well, obviously, then you go into, like, the Dorm Days movies, and now, again, we're, there's all these other people whose inputs have to be put into the system and processed, and a yes or no decision has to be made. And it's not like Pat and I can just be like, oh, this is what we want to have happen, and then that happens. Um, but it is really fun getting to work with, like, a seasoned pro, like, Richard Reel, or, or Larry Drake was great, who was also in Dorm Days 2, who, of course, played the bad guy in, uh, Darkman, um, and was the retarded guy in L.A. Law. It was just fun, you know, talking to these people who've been in these projects, like, guy, I, I had, like, an hour-long conversation with him at lunch about Darkman, and he told me this story about when they were shooting the scene where um, Darkman's hanging from the helicopter. And it's like, dark, you can't see who's in the helicopter, but he'd never ridden in a helicopter before. And he was telling me about how he uh, begged the, like, stunt guys to let him ride along when they were shooting this, like, action sequence um, through, like, downtown. And they let him ride along. And I was like, well, that's cool. I mean, I'm really enjoying be, hearing these stories from, like, an actor that I've always thought was really cool. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And it's really, I'm sure, you know, being on projects like this and, I mean, were you actually on a cruise, you guys on a cruise ship or? Um, well, the Queen Mary, well, not the Queen Mary 2, right? No, the Queen Mary 2 is still functioning, right, Pat? 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 Um, did, did we lose him? Because he's still on my uh, my switchboard. Well, anyway, I think the the ship we were on is like a super old ship, um, and they used it during World War II to transport people from England to America. It didn't that, you know? Obviously, didn't fight because it's just a cruise ship. It was like a transport ship. Um, and I, I don't know at what point, in the 60s or the 70s, they permanently docked it in Long Beach. And it's just sitting there. And they built, like, a little rock alcove around it. So it's like it can't even be affected by, like, waves or anything. Um, actually, the last episode of Arrested Development was shot on the Queen Mary. Oh, nice. So the so first, that, what, you said the last episode, or...? What? Which episode yeah. of Arrested Development? The series finale of Arrested yeah, Development. Yeah, series finale. The very last episode. 
they shot on the Queen Mary. So that was fun to watch, having just shot a movie on there. Oh, nice. You're like, I was there. And it looked very really different, like because on that, they were acting like the ship could, uh, you know, pull away from port and all that stuff. When, like, you know, this isn't real. Arrested development's not real. You know, <laughs> for us, it was, you know, we were well aware that the uh, ship was disgustingly landlocked. I mean, we would have we'd have jokes of how gross it would be to fall in the water surrounding the ship, knowing that it had been sitting there stagnant for, uh, you know, three decades. There were fish in there, though. <laughs> we found a, um, uh, like, full-sized human dummy in there that they used in the movie for a special effect. I wonder, yeah, it's pretty, you know, like, I bet they don't have anything dummy. about that. I bet they don't have anything about that on the special features of the DVD, now that I think about it, because... <laughs> They don't know how to do special features. Yeah, they don't really like. I mean, what I've noticed from Dorm Days uh, One and Two. I mean, I was surprised that they didn't have you guys come on uh, for commentary or whatever. Well, Pat and I could uh, complain endlessly about our desire for them to have a uh, an actor's commentary. Yeah, I mean, on one of the Dorm Days movies we went to, you but, know coming up with, uh, you know, doing special features on a DVD that viewers at home might actually want to, like, watch and be entertained by. <laughs> but the Hill and Brands don't place a high priority on that, since all they ever want to put on their DVDs is, like, a commentary of the two of them and Dave O'Brien, the editor, talking about the editing for two hours. And constantly, we're like, guys, you got to just bring the cast in, just the whole cast, and just let them talk, and they'll tell funny stories. I mean, and that's like... These are funny people, you know? Just put them in front of a microphone, and it'll be good. I mean, even with but, me stop stabbing me, you guys were funny, and you guys knew, you know, the good stories to tell and everything, and, I mean, that's what I that's what I liked about the Hey, Stop Stabbing Me, but then when I got dorm days, I was like, oh, maybe you guys had a commentary track. I mean, and, we'd do a commentary track if we were... Uh, Ask, but, no, I mean, I, it's hard to say, really, because we'd listened to a lot of commentary tracks by the time we did Hey, Stop Stabbing Me. So I don't know if the problem is just that the Hill and Brands, like, Hello? don't listen to commentaries. Because it seems so, you know, like, even like you were just saying, um, and obviously Pat and I have the same opinions of, uh, like, what makes a good commentary good. It just seems so obvious, um, but the human brands really don't seem to share that opinion. And I have to assume it's because they personally have not listened to a lot of commentaries. Because That's anyone who's listened to like yeah. uh, anyone who's listened to like a Bruce Campbell commentary, you know, they know what a good commentary is. And then you listen to like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to just like rip on them for no reason, but. A Hillenbrand commentary compared <laughs> to a Bruce Campbell commentary. Um, right there, that's that's like a a one oh one class in how to do a uh D V D commentary. I think part of the reason also maybe they don't want to put us on the commentary is because uh well, it's like a big part of commentary ought to be, you know, self deprecating humor typically. And I think the Hillenbrands are afraid to put us on the commentary possibly because they think we might be a little too Hillenbrand deprecating. Yeah, I mean that—that's entirely possible. 
Which is possible. I understand their concern on that front. I well, I mean, shouldn't they give you? I mean, they they could give you a list of things not to talk about. You know. Well, I don't know. We don't. That we have a weird relationship with them. It's uh, I I I would bet a lot of money that people would um, like if we if I asked someone to describe what they thought our relationship was with these guys that we had just made four movies with and had known since uh, 2002. But uh, they would describe a relationship that's not wholly uh, accurate. So they'd be amazing if they could describe it accurately. But uh, yeah, but they would they, they would say something. They wouldn't be as brutally honest as you guys would be, probably, right? No, yeah, but just like um, um, well, Pat and I, for example, earlier uh, in 2006, finally went to Scott Hillenbrand's house for his birthday party, both independently had a very fun time, but I remember when we were going to that party, we were both like, isn't this weird that we're finally going to, like, Scott's house, Um, where, as people, you know, that both of us know significantly less, and have known for, like, less periods of time, we've been over to their houses, or, like, gone out and had drinks with them, but we for the most part, we've had a very, like, professional, just, like, strictly work relationship with the Hillen brands, which has really added to the, uh, I don't want to say entertainingly bizarre uh, working relationship we've had as far as, like, you know, we don't really talk to them until we're going to make a movie, and then we make a movie, which, you know, seems so, like, important and personal and, like, deep and then we don't really talk to him again until we make another movie. You know, it's just weird. It's kind of fun in its weirdness, almost, but uh, weird nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. They like to uh, also, yeah, it's like, because we like to, like, mock everything all the time and, like, make fun of the parts of our own movies that are stupid and mock all the bad jokes. But well, I think they don't like to like mention the stuff that doesn't work because they're hoping that no one will notice if they don't point it out. But I love to mock, you know? We're yeah, busy. exactly. I mean, I can't stop. If we made The Godfather, I'd, I'd mock it just as hard. I'd say that's our philosophy, except I don't even feel like that's accurate because to us it seems beyond like a, philo- a personal philosophy. It's just if you made a movie and there's stuff in it that's not good, why wouldn't you point out that that's not good? I mean, who, who are you... Uh, serving or fooling by pretending that the crappy parts of your movie aren't crappy. But that's the way we, uh, I guess, part from the uh, Hillen brands. But, um, but actually, that's part of what I think we find fun about working with them. It's because both of us, a long time ago, had read a book by Roger Corman called How I Made a Hundred Movies and Never Lost a Dime. Which great book, by the way. Yeah, anyone listening to this who has not read that book should listen to, or not listen to that book. Read that book. Maybe well, I'm sure they have books on tape of it. Maybe. I don't know if he has an audio co- an audio book. That I mean, actually, I've already read the book and still own it. I'd probably buy the Roger Corman audio book though. If he did anyway. the comment, yeah, if he did it right, only if he actually provided the voice. 
Well, it's it's an awesome book. I don't want to I don't want to diverge too much into what the book's like, but just to throw it out to anyone who might be listening to this to intrigue them further, is uh, it's it's a Roger Corman autobiography. But obviously, anyone who knows who Roger Corman is knows that the main reason Roger Corman's such a legend isn't because he made good movies, because most of his movies kind of suck. It's he's famous because he was so good at picking upcoming talent to make his movies. You know, Martin Scorsese, Jack Nicholson, Joe Dante, blah, 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 whatever. Um, So throughout the book, they'll periodically have these little, like, paragraphs just randomly written by, like, Jack Nicholson or Joe Dante or Francis Ford Coppola or Martin Scorsese or, uh, you know, whatever, Peter Fonda. it's a fascinating book, especially into the world of low-budget filmmaking. And now I'm trying to think back to why I even started talking about this. Because uh, it was a good book, and you recommend people to... I guess that's where you're going, right? I'm now realizing my tangent started well before that. Um. I can't go inside your mind, worm. I know. Pat, can you delve into my mind? I don't remember what you were talking about. Um, <laughs> damn it! <laughs> you know, you know what's gonna happen. You're gonna, you're gonna listen to this like later on in the archives, and you're gonna be like, "That's what I was talking about." Shit! Well, we were talking about the Hillenbrand's commentary. <laughs> we were talking about uh, self-deprecation. Oh, and Corman being self-deprecating? Or were you, you going to tell some story along those lines? Or, oh, no, just about how working for the Hill and Rand, like the fact that they're perhaps not, like, um, <clears throat> the most ideal directors for our scripts and maybe they don't yes, you know, sell off every joke the way it ought to. But we, we've all we've kind of had the philosophy because we were Roger Corman fans that these are our, you know, our early wacky Corman-type years. That's why like, yeah. writing Game Gamebox 1.0 was so much fun because we knew going oh, in with so little budget, you know, we just had to pump it out, and it was fun. Um, but well, that's, that's good that you finally remember that. Um, that okay. is exactly what I was talking about. Well, so you did delve into his mind, didn't you, Patrick? I did. You guys have uh, been working together too long. Yeah. Because, among other things. <laughs> but yes, as because. You know, if if I had a wish, you know, maybe I could wish for world peace, but whatever. No, no, don't. Fuck everybody else. That doesn't do me any good. I, you know, I've always wanted to, like, travel back in time and be part of that, like, 70s Roger Corman push where, you know, like Jonathan Demme, I'd go on to direct uh, um, Silence of the Lambs or some, like, landmark awesome movie then you look at my filmography and, like, the beginning of it has, like, you know, women's prison thrillers, like, Cage Teeth and, like, ridiculous stuff. Like, or even, like, Peter Jackson, you got Lord of the Rings, it begins with Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, Brain Dead, you know. Yeah, so we're filling out that early part of our filmography right now, the, like, embarrassing early part. We're trying to pad our numbers, um, you know, set it up for our critically acclaimed, uh, you know, artistically successful, uh, you know, later portion of the career. Woo! Yeah, I'm um, I'm anxious to see uh, where my, I saw that you had uh, wrote for Mark Cartier. 
Uh, yeah, Mark Cartier. Yeah, you wrote uh, Killing Christian for him. Oh, that movie's no good. Don't see it. Really? Learn. You've got PR responsibilities here, for God's sake. I have no PR responsibilities. <laughs> Was it really that bad? My, uh, one of my latent dreams is to rewrite that movie as the feature that it was supposed to be. So what what happened exactly? Like, because I've been interested to see it, but it hasn't been. Like... Oh well, I'm not trying to like shit on the movie. Basically, what it was is we had a friend, Mark Cartier, also from Minnesota, although more coincidentally than like like Pat and I are both from Minnesota. And we're in the, the same town, we and we did school town. together, you know. Yeah, we were friends in Minnesota and moved out here. Mark Cartier is from Minnesota in that he's also from Minnesota. Um, we met him in Minnesota where we were being, where we were extras on this awful Chris Klein, um, what's your face? Sobieski movie. Oh, The yeah, Year on, Year Earth, on or... Earth. Yeah. Yeah, wasn't it terrible? It was, it was awful. I, I, I watched but, it only for Lily, but it was... Pat, Pat is in the opening shot of the movie. Woohoo! If you uh, watch the movie, the, literally the first shot, once we come, you know, fade in, colon, interior, um, you know, prep school, mess hall, blah, 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 day. Um, Pat's in that shot. Anyway, whatever. We, that's how we met Mark. Um, he's also from Minnesota. He's from um, Bumblefuck, Nowheresville, northern Minnesota. Um, and we've been friends with him out here. Uh, and then he had been an actor and then decided that he didn't want to be an actor anymore and wanted to be like a filmmaker. So he went to the LA film school, which if I remember correctly, has recently become credited. Does that sound right, Pat? Uh, maybe. I can't remember. Okay. Well, it used, used to be accredited, be, and now it is. Yeah, it used to be just some, like, fake art school, and now it's accredited in some way. Anyway, blah, blah, whatever. He went to that school, um, and he would always call me and be like, yeah, well, I need to make a film, write me a movie. Um, and I wrote him one movie that we made that was okay. Was it broadcast? Broadcast, yes. Um, Broadcast was a pretty good show, I say. That was a short, you know. It was good though. The script was so good though. Like the movie could have been great. That's the problem with writing scripts for a first-time film student. Obviously, you're going to end up with lackluster results. Killing Christian, though, I felt way worse about because that was an idea I was mulling over for a feature, and. He offered, this is, again, this is when I was, this is in between Dorm Days 1 um, and Game Box in that nether world where I quit the sandwich shop on principle. It was like a show of uh, manly awesomeness that I'd, I'd sold a script. I didn't need a job anymore, even though I still needed, you know, money to pay for things that I enjoyed, like, housing and food um and he offered to pay me like 70 bucks to write him a uh student film and this happened to occur right while i was in the like heat of mulling over this feature idea killing christian 
And I'm like, ah, yeah, all right. So I spent like a day and a half writing this uh, short film that was like a kind of disgustingly truncated version of my feature idea. I made that movie and it was fun. Pat and I were in it. It was fun to shoot sometimes. Um, it, I thought it turned out terribly. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's the story for that. Well, you know, um, I mean, would you even, like, recommend people seeing it, even if, like, it goes online or something? No, I mean, if it becomes available somewhere, yeah, go ahead and see it. Why not? I don't want to, I don't want to, like, crap on uh, Mark's uh, viewability. I'm personally embarrassed by it um, as a writer and as an actor, but, uh. Mark also deserves a chance for people to see it as a director. Right, and I mean he hasn't, I guess, been able to put any of the stuff online or something. So uh, I've been uh, trying to, uh, hoping that he'll put something on like YouTube or whatever. You know, I keep looking. There's actually another movie called Killing Christian. Really? Uh, apparently, I went to YouTube to look up Killing Christian. I saw a trailer for some feature film, but it had nothing to do with your story. So, I don't know. Well, that's that, weird. I mean, I even told him that. Last time uh, Pat and I were, uh, are, are starting a new script, we were just at the video store trying to do some sort of, uh, you know, research for it. But when I was looking through uh, the comedy blog, as one might say, I was noting the number of movies named Chasing Something. Like, you know, obviously there's Chasing Amy, which started the craze. But there were literally six other movies right next to Chasing Amy that said Chasing, you know, something. There's one actually called Chasing Holden, which is, I thought was kind of funny, you know. Like, for, like, Catcher in the Rye? Yeah, it was about, uh, uh, a guy who's obsessed with Catcher in the Rye and uh, is, you know, I don't know, just wacky, but, you know, I thought it was funny because Chasing Amy's lead character was named Holden McNeil. Yeah, yeah, that is funny. So, and they're, they're like, they're right next to each other since they're comedies, so. I don't know, but, uh, yeah, uh, Chasing seems to, so is that what you're trying to do? Maybe do a movie called Chasing something? Uh well, I said to uh, somewhat recently, um, I was I, I recently got a new computer, so I had to transfer all my uh, like you know files to my new computer. And I was recently going through my new computer, like thumbing through all my files and trying to make sure I understood what all were. Because obviously, half the time you're saving something, you don't. Know, you don't really think about, like, what you four years from now will think. Right. You just save it with some name, and that means, you know, you have an endless number of files with weird, ambiguous names that mean nothing. But anyway, so I was going through my files, and I found this file. I didn't know what it was. I opened it up, and it turned out to be a uh, My Killing Christian for Mark student film file. I was reading it over, and, you know, it's fucking 
horseshit for the most part. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, I like this. I like this base idea. This is a this is a pretty good idea for a feature film. Like this, this could be like a fucked up, nice notes on a scandal style, uh, slow burn drama. Mhm. And then I called Mark and I was like asking him questions about it, and. Uh, Hello? Oh, Worm? Hello? 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 Yeah, hey, can you hear me? I can hear you now. What happened? I don't know. That was weird. You were talking to Mark. Hello? 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 Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so I can hear hear both of you. You can both hear me? Yes, yes. Proceed with your story. Yes. Pat? Yeah, Worm, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear both of you. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so, so go ahead. Continue well, with the story I, about I, Mark. I like telling Christian, and I. Uh, what was I talking about? You were talking you were about that it would make a good feature, and you were talking to Mark, and you asked him a question. Yes. Uh... You were you were mulling over the feature. And uh, I guess you were talking to him about the short. You're the worst interview I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember now. You are uninteresting, Worm Miller. <laughs> you can't remember a thing, can you? I'm I'm no good. <laughs> I'm done. No, it's it's okay. Uh, let's see. Let's see if I can bring up some questions. You know that. Uh, uh, All right, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about Dorm Days 3 or something. Well, I was going to ask, um, why was the Foosball's character changed from just a guy that you weren't sure if he was gay or not to a pretty flamboyant character in Dorm Days 2? Um, we didn't really change how we wrote him very much. It's just that they recast the character and the new actor came in with like a whole different take on it. I mean, I think the Hill and Brands encouraged him to do it that way. But we don't really know why the character got changed, really, you know? Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was funny to see it, because it was like, what? You know, wasn't he kind of, like, Randy Spelling played him kind of straight, kind of normal, you know? Which is what the character was, yeah, originally intended as, because he was kind of based on a friend of mine in college. And was was your friend gay, or... Yeah, yeah, and he would just, uh, like, I, I also have a friend, uh, Foosball, from college. It's not based on him, because the real Foosball wasn't gay. But uh, it's based on another friend of mine. And just, like, you know, there's just a gay dude hanging around uh, me and your buddy at the dorm, and it was cool. And I we just thought it was funny, you know, or as a setup, because he doesn't act that gay, that then the girl has a crush on him, because girls love gay dudes, for whatever reason. Yeah, and the, the actor was yeah. Justin Whalen. From like lots of he's been in lots of movies like yeah he's been in like Child's Play two or three or something yeah and he was uh he was Jimmy Olsen on Lois and Clark for a while exactly that's, hmm? that's where I knew him from when I met him I was like this kid looks familiar wait a minute Jimmy Olsen you know yeah actually he's also in a um a, a movie called White Wolves two Legend of the Wild that I used to watch I was like. 
Yeah, because I knew him from uh, basically knew him from that uh, the uh, Lewis and Clark. So, Worm, what's your uh, what's your thoughts on uh, uh, on that whole uh, the changing of the uh, character, the foosball thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, like Pat was saying, um, there are various actors who dropped out of Dorm Days Two from Dorm Days One that we just changed their name. Foosball was the sole um, exception where we just replaced the actor and did not replace the name. We personally were unaware of this. We showed up on set and there was a new foosball. Um, I mean, they'd made like important calls to us across the board um, throughout the process otherwise of actors that we had to suddenly uh, like Patrick Like Tatiana Ali had to drop out because she had a conflict. So did she want to, did she want to return? Yeah, she yeah, was she initially going to return. return. Yeah. She, that was the problem because we just took too long to get the movie going. Um, she'd already had a movie she was signed up to shoot. And, like, when, they, when the producers had initially told her Dorm Days 2 was going to start, start to shoot, it, did just, it just didn't happen that way. And... Uh, as the, I'm sure what year that was. Was that 2005? Um, uh, it was. It was the year you broke your neck. Whatever year that was. I think. Yeah. Let what me. Let me look it up. What it says on IMDb. When, uh, that was uh, before the year turn. Yeah. That was. So that was 2005. So I think I broke my neck in 2004. The end of 2004. Yeah. Because when we were working on Dorm Days Two, um, you had your neck in your neck brace for that fantastic period of time when you couldn't drive. <laughs> well, what happened? What happened to that? Like, you just fell or something? Or, like, how did your uh, neck get broke? Oh, well, I mean, I was... I'm not sure that's the most appropriate story for a... Uh, <laughs> was it really that bad? No, it's not bad. Um, short version, I was at a party... I was really drunk. Um, there was a railing at the front entrance of uh, the uh, mansion that I was partying at that was m- missing a railing. There was a huge portion of railing that was gone. And the front entrance of this said establishment was 16 feet off the ground. It was basically on the second story. It wasn't your standard, like, you walk up the front lawn, there's a front door on the front lawn. You had to walk up the stairs. There's a stairs, doorway, house. All right, I'm going to jump into this. Short answer, he got drunk and and fell off of this mentioned balcony and broke his neck. Uh, (laughs) Actually, that's funny. That's how my uh, uh, that's how my cousin actually got his neck broken too. Really? So yeah. So uh, well, I guess there's other people out there that are doing that. Non-paralyzed. So that okay. Yeah, I mean that's uh, yeah. At least you weren't paralyzed, and at least it wasn't as bad as it could have been. What's the IQ Well, I mean, 
my mother's always told me that I'm uh, exceptionally lucky. Um, is your friend dead? Oh, it's my cousin, and no, he's he's still alive, and he oh. wasn't paralyzed or anything. He was fine. He was just in a neck brace like you. So I'm not supernaturally lucky. Uh, you know, maybe you're both supernaturally lucky. There, there could be two uh, people in the world that are supernaturally lucky. Just not I super, mean, super. Go jump off of something else and see how it turns out. <laughs> if, you're, if you turn out okay again, then we'll know for sure you're lucky. But how else will we know if we don't test it? And then now you're gonna and then videotape it like a jackass thing, and I bet you have a hit. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> you're going all wrong with like plot and character and dialogue. What we really need is just hilarious injuries captured on video. We'll take America by storm. It will, man. Like what? Jackass Two was like uh, number one on the uh, like number one in the box office for a while. And uh, just thinking that the first one didn't make as much money as the second one did, you know. Good, good. The second one made even more than the first. I didn't realize that. They what? They the got second more. one made more money than the first. I yeah. didn't realize. Yeah. So that's pretty crazy. Um. So, are you guys? Um. I mean, are you guys happy with the, what what's going on? Like, I mean, you guys you have a couple more scripts in the works, right? Like. Mhm. And how is that? How's that panning out? Have you guys looked at production companies for them, or are you going to do them yourselves, or what? Well, we've got a sort of a thing kind of getting set up right now, but we can't really talk about it. Yeah, I know. I mean, I didn't want to bring it up too much, but... To do, like, another comedy. Um, Although this one actually aims more at teens and not just an R-rated lech fest. Um, (laughs) Not to uh, put down the Dorm Days movies for being what they are, but... uh, I don't know. Are we happy with what... What's going on? Uh, we're working, you know. It's like we make money as uh, writers. That's that's not much to sneeze at, you know. Right, and uh, I guess uh, you guys are professionals now. After doing, yeah, I mean, uh, hmm. Yeah, indeed we are. Although we are hoping to kick it up a notch this year, especially like going to uh, Romania and shooting a movie in a foreign country it was really fun. I'd like to do that some more. Uh, making movies in other countries and just generally, you know, kicking everything up a notch. I liked how uh, when we were on location, um, people would, you know, suck up to us and, you know, fetch things for us, et cetera. I like that. So was it, uh, I mean, it was, was it set in Romania or Transylvania or something like that? Like, Well, um, Transylvania is a region of Romania and okay. the movie was set there. Um, like it's set where we shot it, basically. In the the instance of Dorm Days Three, it was like during Dorm Days Two, we had been talking about what Dorm Days Three would be, you know, joking around with the actors, and and we kept claiming that it was going to be a horror movie, and everyone would die at the end. And oh, so then it would be the final Dorm Days movie. Well, yeah, that's what we were selling, right? And then uh, after Dorm Days Two was done, Helen Rams asked us to come in and tell them the story of Dorm Days Three that we thought of, basically. And uh, they already knew, we already said it was going to be a horror movie and everyone was going to die. So we come in and tell them our outline. And at that time, it was going to be about, like, a uh, summer camp. It was going to be a summer camp horror movie where at the beginning of the, of the movie, the school gets shut down because there's a serial killer who's been killing co-eds on campus. So they shut 
put the school down before the end of the semester. And one of our caregivers is going to be like, oh, I inherited this uh, summer camp. I'm going to go fix it up as long as we're not at school. And the rest of our gang of, you know, ragamuffins invites themselves along to party. But they don't realize that the serial killer is actually one of the kids, and he comes along, and then wackiness ensues at the summer camp, and everyone ultimately dies. But once we told them that story, they were they were pretty much not down with uh, any of the characters dying or us turning one of the characters from Dorm Days 2 into a serial killer. You know, they're like, how, what, how did he become a killer? Um, he just did. Can we see how? No, I mean, he was really always a killer, you know, in Dorm Days 2. It just didn't come up. But they didn't really like that answer. So they were, they said, you know, well, we've been thinking about making a movie in Romania. Like, they already had some contacts over in Romania. Uh, David Hillenbrand also composes the music for their movies, and he'd, for Gamebox and for Dorm Days 2, had recorded with an orchestra in Bucharest. So they wanted to go to Romania and make a film over there because it's, you know, theoretically cheaper. The crews are good and, and cheaper than an American crew, and you can get, you know, great locations and lots of extras and all that stuff at a reduced rate because it's Eastern Europe and they were, you know, crushed by the communist regime, and so they're very happy to have Hollywood money. So they said, hey, could this... Could we shoot this summer camp thing? It, like, first, they didn't really love our summer camp outline, and then they said, hey, can we shoot this in Romania? And we said, well, if we're going to go to Romania, let's just set it in Romania, and it'll be about studying abroad, you know? We'll put it in a castle and have vampires. Right. And they basically said, okay. So then that pretty much set the course for what the movie was going to be. We came up with the story after they told us it was going to be Romania. We wrote it to that. Hmm. So it takes place in Romania, and we're studying abroad in Romania, and so that we're using a castle. Uh, there's this great castle. It's in uh, Hunedoara, Romania, called Castle Corvine or Castle Hunedoara, and that's where most of the movie was shot. And it's like the castle has been turned into a college, supposedly. Although in reality, it's really just a castle, and it was very poorly insulated and very cold in there. <laughs> 